flying in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot in a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scans. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million hours. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian in late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. And every time we dive in, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, but every time we love and it feels just like this, it feels just like this, it feels I wish I had a time machine, wish I had a better rhyming speed, wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lime bead, I wish that I could spread my wings, I wish that I had seven limbs, that way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish Dímelo, dímelo At least I kinda understand it <laughs> Wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit And get so large I could play pool with the planets Hello, Captains, Pedigrees and Pound Dogs <laughs> How are you guys doing tonight? I'm so glad to join you for another episode of The Debrief I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray and today, as always, we're talking about the latest episode of Bad Faith Podcast. I was so glad to interview. I mean, I just can't tell you. Hero doesn't describe the word. I mean, in my household, Ralph Nader was pretty much the most unimpeachable, tr- genuinely just heroic, uh, aspirational figure, political figure, at least, Discussed, And I mentioned to my mom earlier in the day before the interview that I was going to be interviewing Ralph. And she was literally like, okay, but can I pass on a couple of questions? <laughs> like, you didn't let me, you didn't let me in the door last time. But like, 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 I don't understand. I don't think you understand what this means to me. It's like the thing that she is most proud of in life is that I interview Ralph Nader. It's, it's getting a little absurd at this point. So I was very, very glad. It feels like such an honor to be able to sit down and talk to him and pick his brain. And it was such a an expansive conversation. We touched on a lot of topics that I didn't necessarily anticipate us talking about from obviously the latest kerfuffle uh, with the rail workers to, you know, he's a consumer protection advocate. And it occurred to me halfway through, like with all that you've done for car safety in the United States, what do you think about Elon Musk? and Tesla's and some of the complaints about quality. I mean, everyone's talking about his Twitter management, but what do you think about the quality control issues around the Tesla's and um, the Congressional Black Caucus and the history of it and obstructing progressive politics and Hakeem Jeffries as the latest iteration um, of that kind of dynamic. And it was just, it was just such an honor. And I wish we could have spoken for an hour or two more. Uh, Most certainly he will come back on the podcast, but I know that that's on people's minds. Last week's, Last week's episode was five hours long and the most highly attended call-in we've ever done. So I also wouldn't be surprised if people have more thoughts and feelings about the discussion from last week. So let me not um, delay anymore. Let's get right into it. Lysol, I know you were in the queue last week and we didn't get to you. What's in your mind tonight? Hey, Bree. Hey, Lysol. What the heck? <laughs> 
Be more specific. How so? Oh, you mean Shama? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I got you. I got you. I got you. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Trial. What the actual fuck are, are you saying? <laughs> did you, uh, did you ever watch RuPaul? Uh, like RuPaul's Drag Race? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. So you know the, the sound, something goes awkward. It's like, down. <laughs> I had that up in like the middle of conversations where it was appropriate. I was like, let me just pull up my phone. <laughs> you guys are so messy. <laughs> I want Kashama on that too. I want to, um... oh, that reminds me. Um, I'm working on a local SF call-in for some time in 2023. I was wondering what software do you use to, uh, to run the stuff? For like this, this call-in app? Specifically for call-in, yeah. Um, so the call-in people sent me a Rode soundboard when we first got started. Uh, and so I use that. And it, like your phone plugs into it and your computer can plug into it as well. So sometimes I do my outro song, something different than the song that I programmed into the soundboard for the intro. And that is done via the computer. Although the hub, the USB-C port for the computer stopped working a couple of months ago. And I have, it has a, a Bluetooth function. So... I'm lucky to still be able to use it, but if you're listening, <laughs> call it people. Anyone is sending a replacement board, I wouldn't be mad at it. Nice. Are you still with me, Lysol? I am. Okay. Do you Sorry, have any questions other than production quality questions? Oh, um, so, God, I remember like two or three months ago when I was like, we need somebody who like won't flinch, and my recommendation was John Stewart. Mm. I'd like to officially that. Mm-hmm. For any and, particular reason, because I know he had a couple of interviews that people weren't. What was the most recent one that people weren't wild about? Oh, the the Hillary Clinton Condoleezza Rice interview. That was just. I mean, my heart rate jumps twenty beats just thinking about either of them, and then having the two of them in the room together and not asking, not blah, not asking the questions he could have asked. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like he was like, but you don't understand. We got to people, and John's like, oh, valid point. Okay. Yeah, it was confusing because that was also his wheelhouse. You know, I, 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 there are sometimes, I know that it sometimes happens that you're in a context that is not as familiar to you and you're just not as equipped to push back. But I kind of feel like all of that foreign interventionism and forever war stuff was like really his bag. Like that was his wheelhouse. So I'm not exactly sure what was happening there. Um, but it was very heartening to see people, not just on the left, but kind of across the political spectrum, see that for what it was and express some disappointment there. Maybe there was like preconditions where they couldn't say certain things in the interview in order to get the interview. I mean, I, I don't, at a certain point when you're talking to people like that, there's, it, if you, if you make a certain kind of commitment, there's no point to the interview, right? Like, okay. If, if he's James Corden and he's driving in a car with uh, Hillary Clinton and Chelsea and like singing songs, I understand saying, okay, my thing is singing songs with celebrities. I'm, I can go ahead and pledge that I'm not going to ask her about slave markets in Libya. But if you're Jon Stewart interviewing them on a political podcast, there can't be. And, and the topic came up, right? It's not like they weren't, you know, they had cordoned off a whole area of inquiry. Like they were talking about it. Once you're talking about it, to not then push back and say the things you know to be true, or at least not allow things you know to be untrue to be kind of spouted off so uncritically, I don't know. It was what it was. So I'm, I'm really excited about the uh, the Nader Corps that y'all are setting up with a thousand people around the country. 
I like the sound of that. Yo, and he was like, for those of you who haven't maybe listened to the um, full premium episode, he basically said that if you give me, what did he say, a thousand? A thousand people for I think like six months. Yeah, a thousand full-time paid, which is, you know, a big a big deal. I mean, that's a big commitment, but a thousand full-time like workers, he could get his Medicare for all under in under a year. I said, okay, there are going to be a lot of people listening to that who would happily take the challenge and maybe not a thousand full time, but you can get 10,000 part time. Um, and so we're, we, you know, we were talking about this a little bit on last week's episode too. One of the later in the evening callers was talking about her desire to kind of get off the app and start doing things. And I was expressing some of my sense of overwhelm about what that actually looks like and how to go about doing it. Because, I mean, to Nader's point, it is a full-time gig. And as someone who is in this kind of calm space, I'm reluctant to say, okay, I'm going to do that because I know what that means. I, I mean, that means I'm not doing the other thing anymore or I'm doing both things poorly. And I already kind of feel like I'm doing too many comms things sort of with decreasing quality levels. So, I don't know. What do you think about it? <laughs> um, under, I wonder if RBN could play nicely with Rob. Mm. I feel like they have similar goals, but I also feel like sometimes RBN, one thing you've said and completely writes you off. And yeah. I think that, I, look, we all are kind of um, figuring ourselves out. I feel like sometimes in this space, and I don't know. I I I really I enjoyed their interview with Ryan Graham, and I was I I wondered after listening to them interview him if they might have a different kind of approach, not in terms of substance, but in terms of kind of like t- temperament, maybe and that's not exactly the right word, but sometimes, you know, we have had exchanges on my show and on this app where, you know, they have felt that I was too soft on these people or was too willing to continue to have some kind of relationship with them um, or not willing to use the exact um kind of condemnatory language that they have at times used about them. And when I saw the way they were able to have a, a, a kind of useful exchange with Ryan Grimm without holding, you know, without letting him off the hook at all, I wondered if perhaps there might be an evolution in terms of, you know, what approach they think is necessary with these kinds of figures or maybe not, maybe not, but I, I, I enjoyed it and it wasn't quite as, um, you know, it wasn't quite as like condemnatory as some of the rhetoric that's been used in that for for those folks in the past. So, did you did you see that? Did you think anything of it? Um, I caught the part where Ryan was. I didn't catch. I didn't catch it after that. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I called in Arbian's call in a couple of weeks ago just to check with them because, um, I mean, they're really great on labor issues. So I want to know like, where they were on COVID and stuff because I view COVID as like first and foremost. I mean, beyond public health, it's kind of a it's an employment issue, especially if like 10% of the population can't keep a job right now because they have long COVID. Mm-hmm. After like two or three minutes of railing against the, the mandates and the mass mandates, which absolutely was not what I was calling in about, I started talking to him about long COVID and one of their friends was online. It's like, oh no, I totally believe with you. I have long COVID. And so, I don't know. I, when I'm looking for, it, I don't, I try not to write anybody off. Like everybody's got, I listen to Taylor Lorenz and absolutely nothing but COVID. Um, I tune out Sauger as soon as they start talking about COVID because they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. And so it's, you know, it's a little bit, little bit of this, that, but I try not to. Fully COVID can't. remains this. 
it's it's funny. It feels almost like going into midterms and it not being as big of an issue as I think some people might have anticipated it would be, myself included. I really thought that, you know, COVID would matter more. And maybe it did matter somewhat in places like New York when you saw Lee Zeldin, like, making some inroads. But who who knows what to attribute that to? Was it about the tough on crime stuff? Was it about the COVID stuff? Was it about the homelessness stuff? Was it about who who knows? Just people just don't like cultural. I don't know. But after midterms, when COVID didn't really seem to factor much in at least the post-election reporting, I wondered if some of that would go away. Like COVID would stop being this defining issue and people seem to have maybe moved on to like, you know, you see Elon melting down about the pronouns right now on the bird app or the trans stuff certainly seems to be ramping up with all of the uh, harassment of gunned, you know, armed people at these um, drag shows and stuff. And, and the, the accusations of the Twitter guy being a groomer, you know, like, do, I, what do you think? Do you think that it's going anywhere? Do you think it's still going to be the third rail that it's been for the last two years? Always, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know well enough to know why we vote in November, but I always thought it'd be different if we voted in January because I feel like this is like often like the hardest month to, to pay rent because a bunch of days, and if you're not paid sick leave, you know, you got to deal with that. You got to, you got to buy buy your kids a bunch of toys and stuff. I feel like there's been a couple times where it's like, yeah, some was like a, a real issue in January. It's like, well, nobody's about that in the first weekend of November, you know? But, I mean, well, I, I would think that people would be thinking about COVID. I mean, I don't know. It's been difficult. We haven't been covering it as much on Rising. And I asked folks like, so what's the deal? People were just mad about mandates. And now that there's nothing to complain about with respect to mandates, because they're all gone. Nobody wants to talk about like the triple pandemic or whatever. <laughs> and like all the kids with RSV and stuff in the hospital and, you know, and it's hard to understand. I also understand that it's hard to like fully, you know, have a, an, an honest referendum on how much of the news cycle is a, a kind of an alarmism that sometimes does happen in the COVID context, or whether the stats really are as bad as they appear to be. And there's some recommendations that people start wearing masks indoors, which are not mandates, but somehow even the recommendation is being repoliticized again. And it feels impossible to be a, a person in this world who both thinks that long COVID is scary and a legitimate concern and that people have it. And that mistakes were made um, in the CDC's reporting about what vaccines could and couldn't do that loss of public trust. And also that vaccines keep people from dying and like it's it's a hard to live in this middle space, and I think it makes a lot of people want to check out. I mean, I I feel like they've just gotten really like kind of like focusing in our attention, like like all the Ukraine flags in late February, early March, by Twitter profiles. Um, there was a stone pipeline leak that leaked mm -hmm. five uh, gallons of oil. Haven't heard a peep about that. It's like yeah. one of the biggest one of the biggest leaks in land in history, but like crickets, you know. Yeah, I'm trying to get. I'm trying to do a, a rising they, segment on it tomorrow. If they thrown soup at the guy who runs the pipeline, we'd be talking about it. <laughs> right. This is what. Like, I, I so wish we had, had more time to get into that with Nader. In fact, that was when I originally reached out to him weeks and weeks ago. It was because I wanted him to specifically weigh in on that. Like when we did the episode about the soup uh, with Nathan Robinson. Originally, I had wanted that to be a Nader episode, but he wasn't available. Uh, so I, I, we got sidetracked and I didn't get to it to the very, very end. And Armand had a heart, our producer had a heart out, but, um, maybe next time, because I, I agree. Like, 
I know that people's instincts are, it's not the art's fault. And, you know, this is childish, but we see how the news media is. Uh, anyway, look, thanks for calling in. Uh, unless you have something else I saw, I'm going to go ahead and try to get through some of this queue. No, for sure. Um, what the actual fuck? <laughs> Keep the faith. What the actual fuck? Yeah. <laughs> All right, Alex, what's on your mind tonight? Hello? Hi. What's on your mind, Alex? Hey. Um, so, um, Thomas um, called, um, called you again last week on Monday, um, and you tasked him with articulating his vision, and he failed. And um, I think my perspective is fairly similar because um, I know at least a little bit about um, the perspective of the Platypus Affiliated Society. And so I would like to take up the challenge if... Um, sure, I'm, I'm sorry, the perspective of it just cut a little bit there for me. Uh, the Platypus Affiliated Society. What is the Platypus Affiliated Society? Why am I not remembering this conversation? <laughs> um, it's um, a kind of a leftist sect that... Um, whose goal was to um, kind of dissolve the other leftist sects and um, get all of them in, inside them. And um, the main function was um, to kind of bring um, original Marxist thought back into the spotlight and keep it away from um, historical um, um, disconstruments. And um, yeah, um, I don't know if you know um, the name, uh, its founder, it's um, Chris Catrone. He has been um, quite notorious in certain sectors because he wrote um, an essay, for instance, called, uh, titled Why Not Trump in 2016. And the essay wasn't um, Trump is good or anything, but um, it was literally the title um, Why Not Trump um, in the sin sense of our politics have to be um, divorced from who is in office at this point in time. And if you go back and um, read, um, for instance, this essay, um, you can see that most of what he what he wrote um, actually came um, to pass, and um, but of course um, back then this was very um, controversial. So um, okay, so I help think... me. What 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 is the argument? Because I, I'm afraid I'm not remembering the context of the discussion with Thomas. What what is what is your objection to something that I've to some position that I've taken? What's the argument? No, not to your uh, positions. I just wanted to explain, I think, um, what were badly explained positions by Thomas. Um, and I think the primary disagree or the primary um, misunderstanding came, came about um, through the role of the state. Um, and there has been, of course, the question of how historically contingent is the state. And of course, there have been um, states in a general sense for long before capitalism. And um, Thomas um, talked, for instance, about smashing the state. What is meant here is really um, the modern nation state, which only came into being because of capitalism. Like the Roman Empire, for instance, wasn't a nation state. So um, this type of state came into being specifically um, designed to um, crush the left, and it was designed by Otto von Bismarck, um, both to bring together Germany, but also um, to keep the left at bay. And he also started to implement the welfare programs that were carried on by um, FDR, for instance, and that have really, in a very real sense, um, neutralized the left for quite a long time, 
while at the same time, of course, being um, an enormous benefit for a lot of people. No, there's no denying that. Um, in any case, what we Marxists would like to do is not just uh, is to use the re revolutionary revolutionary potential of the working class, but not just to take over a state, but to create an inter international organization in the form of a socialist party that provides a kind of parallel to states through its internal organization, similarly to how church programs provide welfare where the state doesn't. And um, I don't know if you know this, but one reason why um, healthcare in Europe is so good is because it was actually um, provided by the church before it was provided by the states. They took it over um, and managed it, but um, it came into being through the church and the church still has 18,000 hospitals around the world. So it is actually possible to build up some kind of parallel organization um, on, uh, on a global scale, even if the church um, has stayed out of politics in the modern context for the most part. Um, eventually, this alternative um, society should uh, become capable of taking over capitalism itself. This takeover might be through elections, it might be through unions, or it might be through a revolution like those in the US or in Russia. The important point is that those activities have to be coordinated at an international level through a party. When this party wins an important state, such as the US, what is to be dismantled aren't all the functions of the state, such as healthcare, but its overall primary function, which is by design to destroy the left. Its other functions are to be taken over by the party. Eventually, once the party has taken over most of the planet, what has been called the dictatorship of the proletariat can be created. This should be both an increase of liberal rights as compared to the current dictatorship Alex, of capital. Alex, can I interrupt you for also, a second? Alex, hmm? I'm a little, yeah. I'm just a little lost because I, I would love to for this to be a conversation that is kind of more rooted in what everyone has come here to discuss in this chat room. And I want to be respectful of the fact that people, I know that people have a lot of their independent political ideas and thoughts and feelings. This is feeling a little bit more like a lecture that would be more appropriate on perhaps a show of your own because it's not something that seems to have come up organically in this conversation at all. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, it came up in the conversation um, last week, but of course um, you're right. Um, and I'm sorry that it um, has dragged on for so long, but um, I hope at least, um, I hope at least um, we have a little bit of a better understanding what, um, what's the difference of opinion in regards to the state. I appreciate that, Alex. And maybe if you can drop something like a link or something in the chat so that if people want to know more and kind of follow that that debate down to its logical conclusion or learn more about it, they can. I think that might be helpful to folks, and I appreciate you calling in. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Alex. Keep the faith. Bye-bye. Amanda, what's on your mind tonight? I was so excited by the end of that episode because you got so excited about this thousand people putting together this organizing um, way of organizing to pressure our legislators in Washington, D.C. and getting them in their home base instead of trying to compete in D.C. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you're someone who's been really beating that drum uh, here on the call in, Amanda. So what did you think of it? I got really excited. That's why I'm third in line. I'm really excited. <laughs> I, think that, I think that there are 
because I haven't read the book, but I have heard him talk about this concept before on, on other podcasts. Thank you so much for having him on your podcast, by the way. What a fantastic inspiration for those of us who really want to see change. He's got some practical, pragmatic things that he kind of knows from having the experience. And, okay. and I appreciate you wandering all over the place with it because he does have so such a broad range of experience that that gave those people who haven't experienced him that much before an idea of how broad his um, knowledge base is. Mm -hmm. I'll put it like that, you know. For, for sure. I mean, and people should go back and listen to the first episode. I mean, there was stuff I didn't want to recover kind of about his own life and his own battles and accomplishments. Um, Cause it's been covered before on bad faith, but that was, you know, about a year ago and it's worth re-listening to as a companion episode. There you go. Make sure you guys go and do that. I, I also want to thank you for, for having the, um, the conversation with Ryan and Schwama and really it, it, it's so, it was so good to see that kind of, pushback that wasn't angry but just like how can you possibly call yourself a, what the what the actual how can you think that this is you don't have an opinion on so i appreciate that you bring this out in people and if i might just plug um we are working on a project here on call in a group of us and anyone who wants to participate just go search on the project because We've been having some shows. We've been talking about what we might do to do something. And and if if a project like um, Ralph Nader was describing, where you gather enough people so you've got two specific organizers on every congressional person, right? That's what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. I, I, that's also a project that I know that several people that are in the project that we're working on, which is not yet defined, would like to be involved with. So I think that you were right in saying there are people out there out here that that are up for that. I'm not I don't know how to I'm not an icebreaker kind of person. So I my my expertise is in supporting other people, <laughs> which feels kind of codependent, but anyway <laughs> um i just so i just want to say i'm excited i don't want you to have a five-hour call in and and i'm totally on the team of anybody who who wants to work to improve what we've got going on in the richest country in the world with the most ridiculous problems yeah it is something to hear i mean i felt almost guilty even admitting to my own feelings of overwhelm and despondency to Ralph Nader, given how long he's been in the fight and as rigorous as he remains at 88 years old. But it was, um, I mean, in doing so, I felt it to be a kind of catharsis and I appreciated his perspective and I find it to be booing, booing genuinely. So, so thanks for calling in Amanda. I always enjoy hearing from you. Uh, all right. Look, it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a column without back to back Eric's when it's not back to back Eric's like, I don't know what kind of kismet you two are on. As far as I know, you're in very different parts of the country. One of you is my cousin. One of you isn't. 
LOL. Neither of you is my cousin, as far as I know. <laughs> but you always manage to be right next to each other in this queue, no matter what. I don't know how it happens. <laughs> it just happens that way. I feel like we're kindred spirits. So, you know. <laughs> All right, um, not cousin Eric. What's on your mind? <laughs> so one of the things that were on my mind, because um, I noticed not... I think it works in conjunction with um, the conversation you had with Ralph Nader today and the fact that I was on Twitter and I was reading through that article that Ryan Grimm posted. Mm -hmm. And one of my main complaints that I wish got discussed a little bit more in the conversation from uh, last week was not necessarily how the votes went down and why the votes happened the way they happened. Mm -hmm. I got to the point where that happened. That is what it is. My issue is, why wasn't there more demands beforehand about the fact that Biden could have simply just put the seven days into the um, the original bill? Why wasn't mm-hmm. there rallies for that? Why wasn't that the plan? Mm-hmm. Why that that was didn't make any sense to me. I, I think that's exactly right. And that's what I was trying to get across. And I was like, the, the, the scope of this conversation is kafakta. Like, it shouldn't, mm-hmm. what, why, like, the framing should be Biden has the power to either crush the strike or not. And he is choosing to crush the strike. This is not, like, some people made this, like, joke online, like, oh, I thought that she wanted us to force the vote. And now we're forcing the vote. And she's unhappy. There's two reasons why that is extremely wrong. And dare I say, no, Brianna, be nice, be nice, be nice. Let's just stick with wrong. <laughs> um, the first is that, unlike in the force of vote context, doing nothing gets you more than the middle ground position, which is no TA being forced upon the workers and the workers having the ability to legal strike. So that's a really big, important one. Like, it's a victory to have zero bills passed. We, for once, are in the posture that Republicans are usually in, where they're happy if nothing happens, so they have the upper hand from a negotiating perspective. This time, leftists should have been the one really making it clear that the best outcome, or, you know, depending on how you look at it, the second, the best or the second best outcome is nothing passing Congress and the, the workers being able to strike. The, the number one best outcome, obviously, passing something that has the, the seven-day sick leaves that actually in it. If it is the case that the Biden administration has sing- signaled and everybody has signaled that's just like a non-starter, which I believe to be the case, then your entire focus, I agree with you, Eric, needs to be on the fact that they need to not have anything pass. Moreover, the other reason that this argument about the force, it being like force to vote and why am I not happy is stupid is that even if I agreed with the goal of forcing the vote in the Senate, even if I agreed with that goal, Progressives did not need to vote for the TA in the House for it to pass the House and still have the chance, the shot, however it's being framed in the discourse, the shot at getting the seven days passed. It was going to the Senate regardless of what any of the squad members did because it was tethered to the corporate-friendly TA that all of the corporate-friendly Dems and Republicans wanted to pass. And another thing, when I was reading through that article that kind of just threw me off was at one point, the gentleman who wrote the article said that the uh, pe- the people who uh, in this particular union that the article talked about believed they had, I think they said like 10 or it was like 10 to 15 hard yeses. I think it was 10 or 11. Yeah. 10 mm-hmm. or 11 hard yeses from Republicans. 
And then later down, it goes to still say that they knew that this was going to be a Hail Mary. Now, to me, in the way I analyze things, if you think you got 10 hard yeses, that's not a Hail Mary. So I was confused by just the way that this article was. So there's a a couple of things. One is that there were a number of of Democrats that weren't going to vote for it, including Bernie Sanders. So. Wait, let's let's pull. Because I think that was talking about the seven day sick leave. They believe they oh, had just, ten. I'm seeing what you're saying. Just seven days. Yeah, ten hard, okay. ten to eleven hard yeses for the seven day sick leave of Republicans. But then it's saying that same article it said that it was a hail mary. They still believe so Jeff it a hail joins. Mary. Jeff joins the legislative affairs director. This is, I'm quoting from Ryan's article. The legislative affairs director for BMWED spoke highly of Mance's lobbying effort. Mance is the gentleman who was on the Chapo tra- podcast, who I'm hoping I'll be able to talk to an interview later in this week. Okay. Well, whatever he's telling you, those are the facts, he said, adding that Mance and his colleagues got 107 different meetings that week with a prime focus on Senate Republicans. They came out with a number of hard GOP yeses, he said, but with a good number of soft yeses as well. We were hopeful that we were going to be able to get 10 or 11 Republican senators on the day of the vote, based on the conversations we were having back in November, Joins said. Even the Republican senators were stunned that the workers had no sick leave, but the question was how hard the railroads would fight. Now you're saying that later in the article you think that they said it was a long shot. So for one, Manchin said, I think there was a day before, that he wasn't voting for it. Right? Mm-hmm. So you would need the 11. <laughs> Moreover, I'm sorry, like, I know this seems, there, there were, I will confess, there was like a half a second on Wednesday where I thought, oh, maybe they'll actually pull this off. But not really, because every person that I had spoken to in the days beforehand, whether it was interviewing Lauren Gurley, the Washington Post labor reporter on um, uh, Rising, whether it was Ryan Grimm and the text that we were having all day, whether it was all of the reporting that had gone about, and also my personal lived experience of knowing how they always seem to be so close with these vote tallies, but nothing ever happens. It became clear. I I just, I just knew, I don't know what to tell you. I just knew in my spirit that it wasn't going to happen. So at a certain point, it's like, and and it's, and and, and, and having not happened, it seems ridiculous to be like, okay, here, here, here's, let me, let me actually, let me, this is why it bothers me so much. It's not, it's not in my spirit. I'm not representing myself well. It wasn't that I knew it in my spirit. And it wasn't just that it has happened before, so I felt like it was going to happen again, because that's a little bit reductive as well. It's because if you understand the reasons why the Biden administration was signaling so clearly that this was absolutely not going to pass, like that, that, that he was going to push through a deal that did not have the sick days in it. He's, he's been signaling that for like a week. He's had an artificial deadline of December 9th. Uh, of when he said we have to have this bill signed by the weekend and we're not going to take any modifications. He said that early in the early last week. All of that wasn't just coming out of the ether. That if you understand the power dynamics here, you'll understand that the sick days has been a sticking point for three years. These people have been without a contract for three years, and it's because of the PSR. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I, I don't. I'm not trying to belabor this, but like if you listen to the Chapo episode, like they're they're very they're very clear. It's all about the precision railroading business, where the whole point is that they're, the scheduling that they do for the railroad to make money hand over fist requires them not to have flexibility in the worker schedules, period. 
That 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 mm-hmm. is why they're inflexible. And if you understand that there is a reason why the railroads are being inflexible, not just like I mean, it is it is corporate greed, but it's a very specific thing. It's not like oh, I want to pinch every penny. It's if we let this camel's nose under the tent, it means we lose a ton of money, not just the actual like literal cost of paying paying someone for a day that they're not working, but we have to completely rejigger the whole way we run these trains. When you, when you like conceptualize that that is the issue, that's what the sticking point, that's why they won't budge. That's why this has been going on for three years. Then why on earth would you expect just randomly in the 11th hour, the Congress to be like, Oh yeah, totes. We're going to ignore all of the corporate interests that fill our coffers and, and pay for us to run our elections and keep us in office. The, the Joe Biden, who took more money from billionaires than any other pre- president uh, candidate in the crowded 2019-2020 primary, all of that, we're just, it's going to magically disappear. And we're going to pretend that Joe Biden making these strong statements about how absolutely not, we're going to force through this TA, didn't mean anything. Biden's and, not uh, stupid. Per, per Nader, Biden voted against this exact thing in the 90s. Yes. And he one he knows what's that- up. He's making choices here. And so it's deeply naive to look at what the president of the United States is telling you is going to happen. And so, oh, I think that somehow these Congress members are going to be more generous. These Republican Congress members are going to be more generous and helpful and less corporate friendly and less captured than the so-called most union friendly president since FDR. And I think that to me was one of the points that I think Ryan was kind of missing was just the history of these types of votes. And one of the last things that I really wanted to touch on was um, one, like when y'all, this goes back to last week's call in when um, I think this was actually when you actually Ryan came in is this idea of journalism. I think this like, um, I don't think Ryan would consider himself a necessary neutral journalist per se. I think he would say that, you know, he, he, his leftist views are very, you know, prominent in what he talks about, but I do think he has, he believes he has a neutralist um, framework within that left space. And I think that the idea of a neutral journalist to me is just a, uh, a farce. I think that I'm not a journalist, but I just see journalists speak and it's just like, what you talk about, what you choose to write about, and what you believe and what you lean to is going to come out regardless, be it subconsciously or, or unconsciously. Because one of the things that I've noticed right now is now they're trying to push for the executive order. Mm-hmm. To me, if Biden was going to do that, because exec- I didn't even know about the executive order and what uh, Obama did and he, how he carved out mm-hmm. and left railroads from the seven days, then if that was the case, and Biden really wanted to do it, he'd have the executive order ready to be done right away. And yep. if they really want, if they, to me, this is where I get, this is where I get so frustrated when Ryan tries to defend these, um, the, uh, the squad and the progressive, you know, elements of our elected official is because there's no lack, there's a lack of, of cleverness. There's because if that was the case, if I was in Congress, I would have had, an executive order ready written. Once that bill failed for the seven days and I knew he could do the executive order, I would have been like, oh, I got an executive order already written. It's three sentences here ready for you to sign. Yes, by, Eric, uh, President that, that's what you would expect if someone actually wanted rail workers to have sick days. Uh-huh. But that, that's the thing, Eric, like every point of evidence in the world, I can't even believe we have to be walking through this because every piece of evidence on the entire planet indicates that quite obviously – 
Joe Biden doesn't want these real workers. And that's not me being like a hater. And I don't think that Joe Biden, if he were like a regular schmo, you know, guy off the street has some like hate for real workers and just doesn't want them to be happy. But him being the president of the United States with the people that he owes in the position that he's in, there's just no way he's going to let that happen. And so everyone's sitting here acting like, I mean, just like really parse through the logic of this. Joe Biden could veto the, the, what, whatever bill Congress passes and it can basically obliv- like make it so that the, in effect, the, this, this, um, uh, you know, 1920s rail bill doesn't exist. A uh, rail act yeah. doesn't exist. Like in effect. So when Ryan's like, oh, what do you, what do you mean? You want to get rid of this rail act? No. I mean, yes. But like what we're really saying is like, in effect, the public posture should be that Biden can in effect invalidate it. And if Democrats weren't pieces of shit, they voting as a caucus, seeing how they still have majorities in the House and the Senate could invalidate it. They could, they could, they could veto it. They could not pass it. They could block it. It wouldn't matter that it exists. And my issue that happens is at the what it does, what I think ends up happening, what I think Ryan didn't get. I'm not sure if he got it, but it looks like he didn't get is that the way the progressive acted gives cover to the corporate Democrats. So now society doesn't know anything about how Biden is complicit. They just think it's the Republicans fault when it's also the Democrats fault. And the last point I would like to make is I want someone now who has actual access to these uh, the squad and other progressive who will actually do commentary. I know Ro would come. To me, one of the things I would ask, because Ro likes to go in anywhere on all the podcasts, he, I would ask him, if Biden does not pass, write this executive order for the seven days of sick leave, would you denounce supporting him when he runs for president again? Mm. That's the question every last one of them gets. If he does not give you the seven-day sick leave, they should have to be forced to say, I will not support him for his presidential run. Or I will support him for pre- pre- uh, presidential run, knowing in the fact that he denied seven days of sick leave. And yeah, well, what they're going to say is there's, you know, better Biden than Trump, better Biden than DeSantis, better Biden yeah. than whomever. And, you know, I mean, like, I, I agree with you that it's a, it's a worthwhile question to ask because it makes it clear where these people stand. But we also know what the answer is going to be to that question. Because vote blue no yeah. matter who means that no one is ever actually going to commit to not supporting Biden if he's the nominee, which he will be the nominee because the entire Democratic Party is rejiggering itself so that he can win the, the South Carolina primary first and foremost, not have to suffer the embarrassment of 2020 in which he came in fourth and fifth in the opening context, uh, contests. Uh-huh. Well, thank you. This is always great. I love talking to you and you guys have a good night. Keep the faith. Thank you, Eric. It's always a pleasure. Keep the faith. All right, cousin Eric, you're up. What's on your mind? Hey, hey. Hey, hey. <laughs> All right. So, Ralph Nader thing, right? So, basically, it's like him and now. Now I now I really understand like why Hedges was a speechwriter. And because they both effectively say the same thing, but it's di- but in a different way, I guess. Um, because because I know because I listened to this with Ralph real quick, and he's basically saying the same thing. Like, you got to bring back your radical traditions. 
that's at least what I got out of it as a general thing. I mean, I, yes, but what is, I mean, what does that, what does that mean to you? I mean, like, what would that look like to you? What are you what if, missing? Are you speaking specifically about the stuff with the trains where you, you, you imagine a world where there were more squad members that sounded more like Shama Sawant? No, 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 no. I'm not, we're not, we're not talking about squad. We're not talking about like squad or anything like that. I'm, I'm just saying like, what I'm saying is that you have to break, you have to start with bringing back those radical, bringing back radical movements back into mainstream before you even start talking about like real offices and stuff like that. So, cause we, we know both these parties are trash anyway. So, so really it does start, uh, it does start ground up, but it's like, when I say ground up, I mean it starts with like actually educating younger people over the course of their lives. But but yeah, that's where it has to start. But then, then it eventually builds into real like actual actual democ- democratic engagement and you know that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, really, and another thing too, I know I said this about Roe when you didn't agree with me, but I'm going to say it about Ryan. He's someone else that needs to be cut off too. Because I, I mean, with that whole thing with you and Shama and him, he, he just showed his ass. Like, there has to be a point in time we just say, nah, fuck this, and just cut you off. What does it mean to cut him off? Like, it just means, like, nah, bro, like, uh uh-uh. Like, back up. Like, really, it just means you already know where he stands, and, like, what's the point of even talking to you anymore? I mean, I think the point is that whether or not I invite him on Bad Faith Podcast, he's still the D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept, one of the most prominent left-leaning media outlets that there is. And he's going to continue to have the perspectives that he has and has have the influence that he has. And I, for one, think it's useful to be able to challenge people who are in relative positions of power and offer a direct objection and counter-narratives that people who appreciate Ryan and consume his work can judge on its face as to whether or not he's actually right because he's been confronted in these kinds of spaces instead of just going back and forth in endless Twitter wars that are very difficult, you know, to express yourself in. I mean, I think a lot of people who might not have agreed that Ryan is, let's say, running cover for the left, for the squad members or whatever the accusations are, might have a better understanding of those arguments after this latest episode, for instance. And I think as someone who obviously disagreed with Ryan's approach here, that that is useful. I don't think that a world in which last week's episode didn't happen is a better informed world or a world where the part of the left that I am a part of has more power. Do you feel differently? Well, it's it's not even just about power for me. It's just, well, not in terms of like a conversation. I'm just saying like, I guess, I guess what I mean is just, Hold on a second. Oh, that stopped, thankfully. 
Um, <laughs> what I what I mean is, it's I mean just having standards at some point. Like you can already. I'm not saying don't talk. Don't talk to people. I'm just so what saying. What does it mean then to, to cut someone off? It just it just means like after some point, like yeah, we're gonna interact with you, but at some point, it's like. Nah, brother, like, I can't keep doing this. Like, it's, it's, at some point, it's just like, I'm not saying don't, don't like, never talk to them at all. I'm saying, cool, you can talk to people. But, like, there's only so much talking you can do with a person before you kind of realize, yeah, I know where you're at, you know. Okay, but but help me understand, Eric. I I I, I just I'm trying to understand what it means to cut someone off. It so, I you know I interviewed Ryan. I, he's probably been on this podcast what like four times in the last two years, two plus years. It, it, should he have only been on one time? He was on no. fairly recently. Should I have not had him on this most recent time? You know, I, it's not exactly like we're, you know, hanging out at the bar and I'm like attending his kids' bris or anything. So I'm not entirely sure <laughs> what it means for me to cut him off at this at this stage in our our relationship. I just want to I just want to try to understand. Are you just kind of expressing genu- generalized discontent with Ryan's political position in this moment, which you know I share and I want to validate? Yeah, but. You seem to be advertising some kind of action item, and I'm not exactly sure what that means. Like, it seems not, to be some kind of implicit criticism that I should be interacting with him differently I, than I already am. And I just want to be clear on that, what it is that you're advocating. I ain't going that. I'm not going this technical, super deep into this. Okay, so what does it mean? To I'm just saying. I'm just. What it means to cut somebody off is like, and I know. So, I know some people chat about. Well, you had the same argument with Tit and Jank. Uh, yeah, I did. Because at some point, you got to. But at some point, you got to have standards for you. And just be like, you know what? Uh, we ain't doing this. I'm just saying, like, there is a matter of self-respect when you just choose not to talk to someone anymore. Especially especially with how... With this railway strike and... Again, the conversation with him and Shama is just like... It's like, nah, bro, like... like you just showed you're not on the side of you're not really you're not really for the workers. You just showed that, and also was because I mean when he was on RBN, he talked about apparently how he grew up poor and all this. I'm like, bro, you don't even sound genuine. Well, look, I, I don't like I don't have any you interest in questioning that. Like you, neither you nor I know how Ryan grew up, and I, I frankly, the same way that. It can be true that there's some railroad railroad workers that agreed with this plan and thought it was a good idea. I disagree with that. And it can be true that Ryan grew up poor and has that perspective, and I still disagree with him. Because, I mean, like those, those features, those identity characteristics of having experienced poverty in one's youth or being a railroad worker don't necessarily mean that this was a good plan either way. <laughs> you know, no, so... I know, I, know, I know that, Bray. So I don't that. feel the need to impugn the integrity of... The railroad workers, I don't feel the need to impugn the integrity of Ryan's narrative account of his upbringing. None of that really matters to me. At the end of the day, all I wanted was for Ryan and anybody else to articulate to me what was gained by these 
handful of squad members voting for a strike killing bill when it would have passed to the Senate without their votes. All I'm, and they weren't able to do I'm that. Just, and I think just, it's, yeah. it's useful for Ryan to have come on the podcast to be able to parse that out. And I'm very grateful that he was willing to do so. Cause it was, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the lion pit. <laughs> I'm just saying, I guess my, I guess my, like I said, my thing is like, there has to be standards when it comes to talking to people. Okay, but what's your ask? Do you think that I should not interview Ryan Graham anymore? Just go ahead and say it. You're, you're allowed saying, to say that. Oh, my God. You're going to do whatever you want to do anyway. I mean, yes. I'm not here to, t- I'm not here to tell you what to do. So what are, what are you telling me, Eric? What are you, what are you telling me, Cousin Eric? I'm just saying my point is, look, like, just, I wouldn't say don't interview him. I would just say, like, at, at some point, cause I'm not here to tell you what to do. I, I never do that on any call-in show or whatever. I'm just saying, I guess my, my general point is just, just up, just like have like real, like at some point there has to be a real cutoff. Like I'm, I'm not just like, people over here want me to tell you what, to, what do I want you to do? I'm like, I can't make you do anything. So, all right. Well, you certainly appreciate Eric that not being able to force somebody to do what you want and having an opinion on what you want them to do are are two things that exist separately in the world. So, of course, you can't yeah, force I'm them not, to do anything. But that doesn't yeah, mean that you can't have your opinions about what I should do. But if you don't want to, if you don't want to say what your opinions are about what I should do, that is also fine. And I appreciate just, you coming Ray, in, I'm, calling in. Ray, I'm just, I'm just saying, just have standards about it. Like, just have like real, like, okay. I'm going to talk to you for so long. Okay. Well, Eric, look, I, I have lived my whole life apparently with no standards whatsoever, but I'm going to try really hard to rehabilitate that failure before the next time you call into this, this show. <laughs> Come on, All Eric. Right, it, is, it is what it is. Like I said, you're going to do whatever you want. It is what it is. All right. All right, my friend. <laughs> look, I, right. I appreciate you calling in. I share your frustration um, with the the you know the the differences of opinion that are out here around this issue and i and i appreciate you calling it keep the faith eric all right tucker what's on your mind tonight can you hear us tucker can you unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind also i'm gonna start skipping around a little bit in this line i meant to do it um from the beginning but just everyone be aware that just because they're in the very very back doesn't mean i'm not going to get to you and I will cheat toward the front. I will go the first, next person in line, then hop around the next person in line, then hop around, et cetera. Uh, but Tucker, what's on your mind? Hey, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Okay, sorry. The website just messed up and kicked me off. But first thing I just wanted to uh, bring up is the new Rising um, song. <laughs> I hate it so much. So, so much. <laughs> and if you could just pass that along to whoever uh, does the audio and tell them to go back to the original or maybe an updated original, that'd be great because the new one's just terrible. I already have to watch Bot. Yeah, like, no, I don't need a new theme song for Rise. Yeah, everybody hates it, but apparently the old one, they, it was, they had like a, there was like a, they had licensed it or something and the license ran out. I don't know why well, you would run it, a business that a way. That's thing. insane. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I promise you, I we bought, we commissioned the Bad Faith theme song. We paid a lot of money for it. 
the guy who wrote it is actually the guy who wrote the um, serial theme song, which is kind of cool. It was expensive, and at no point in time will I never not be able to use it. So I don't know what kind of decisions they're making over there at Rising, but they had to stop using it, apparently. Um, and I was like, you can't just, like, pay them more money to buy the song at this point as part of your brand. But I don't get into the weeds with them on that. I am just uh, contracted. I am not a full-time employee, and that's none of my business. Yeah. <laughs> But um, in the podcast that came out today, um, it was brought up, or uh, Ralph Nader said, 50% of democracy is just showing up, which I completely believe that's true, which is why I, anytime I call in, I usually bring up, hey, go to your local Democratic Party meeting, like, just show up, make your voice heard, because that's where politicians show up, and that's where you make your voices heard. You can't just expect to yell online and expect them to listen to you which mm. uh this past saturday the uh arkansas democratic party of arkansas had its final state committee meeting of the year which is when they were supposed to elect party officers and the executive committee well the current uh party chair isn't running for re-election so they postponed those elections until next month and again i wouldn't have known if i didn't show up no one like, if you don't show up, you just don't know what happens. And, like, going and show, like showing up to local Democratic Party meetings is also beneficial because you know also about all the drama happen, happening around the country or around the state. Because if I wasn't there, I wouldn't know that supposedly there are two competing Facebook groups for the first congressional district in Arkansas. And the only reason I know about that is because uh, one of the state committee members for the uh, first congressional district was saying or talking to the party chair being like, Hey, why hasn't the party gotten engaged with our Facebook group? And then on the other side of the room, someone was like, Oh, the real party will get into contact with you. And I was just confused why it took. So why it, they didn't already get into contact with them. So like you can also see in par internal party drama if you actually go and show up to the local mm. county and state meetings mm. and like i would or like i've called in multiple times and said that i am pro ballot measure like i think leftists need to push for ballot measures and mm -hmm. that's how progressive change actually comes Sabby's, about sabby really beats that drum and i think that she's been i think she's right about it and has it's kind of keyed me into how important ballot measures are for the left oh yeah and like i've wouldn't have known until I showed up, but a lot of people who were in the state committee when I used to be in the state committee, they came up to me and said that people who weren't on the state committee when I was there were talking about the party needing to push for ballot measures. So I'm like, I wouldn't have known that if I didn't show up to the local or the state Democratic Party meetings. And like, no one would be talking about it if I didn't initially get the ball, ball rolling mm -hmm. four years ago. So I'm like, people can say, oh, it's not good to uh, work within the Democratic Party. Th that doesn't mean you have to vote for the Democrat if you don't like the Democrat that's running. But if you want to actually change the Democratic Party, you have to show up to the local meetings. You have to show up to the county meetings. You have to show up to the state meetings, or they're just not going to listen to you because most of the time, they don't care what people are saying online because they get enough shit from Republicans. So they just block that out. But if you go to the meetings and make your voices heard, they have to listen to you. 
And like, that's mm -hmm. one thing about like people on the left, they, it just feels like they don't want to do that. When I know that there are more people on the left that can take over the democratic party. Yeah. I mean, as much as we're inspired by inspired is maybe a strong word, but as much as the idea of being a tea party of the left comes up, you can't ignore what conservatives have managed to accomplish in a relatively short period of time with all of these school board meetings um, and local office offices. Um, and we see what kind of impact it can have in elections, you know, as we observed the wrangling that was happening around, you know, election theft or whatever you want to call it in 2020, a lot of these positions ended up like low key, high key mattering a lot. So yeah, I, I can, I completely agree. Co-signed. Yeah, it's just one of those where I just wish more people would like you don't have to vote Democrat if you don't want to, but just get involved with a party and make your voice heard because they'll at least listen to you. Just don't like say, oh, I'm a third party voter, blah, blah. Then they'll just tune you out. But if you just say, mm -hmm. hey, this is what I believe and this is what I think the party could do to get more people to support them, they will listen to you. Yeah. Because like when I was in the party, I didn't go around saying, oh, vote, vote green, all this stuff. Don't vote for Democrats. No, because then nobody in the party would actually listen to me. Mm -hmm. But because I held back that part of my voting and like what I believe, people actually was like, OK, yeah, ballot measures is a good strategy for the party to do. Oh, at the end of the election, when all the votes are done, the uh people pushing for the ballot measures decide what happens to the leftover money. Oh, that's interesting. That could be extra money for the party. Smart. Which if like people on the left want to push for ballot measures independent of the party, you can donate that to some charity or, or an organization that you support that does like, I don't know, things for the community. Yeah. Yeah. Look, if, if anyone here has had some experience with local government and wants to talk a little bit about how they got involved, I'm always um, eager to hear those stories because I think it does feel kind of still ab abstract. I mean, we can hear what you say, Tucker, but I myself, I'm sitting here in Washington, D.C. going, oh, what the fuck? like, where, what is happening? Like, who, you know, it does, there's something that feels, you know, there's this like stars hollow vision. I'm sorry. I was a big Gilmore Girls head back in the day. <laughs> and, you know, she lived in the small Connecticut town. And they used to always go to their town hall meetings, which was like walking down the street to like the barn, you know, and there's like this town that their town, their town was called Stars Hollow. And there's a Stars Hollow vision of civic participation that seems actually quite accessible and charming and understandable. And then there's a I live in a city with a million people in it version <laughs> that feels a little abstract, even for me. So I do love hearing from people like you, Tucker. And if anybody else has stories of how they started getting uh, started getting more involved. I'd love to hear them. Thanks as always for calling in. No problem. Have a great night. Have a great night. Okay, Jade, Bide, Shelly, sit tight. I'm coming back for you, but I am. I'm mixing it up. I'm mixing it up, and I'm gonna go to. Mm, Hannah, what's on your mind tonight, Hannah? Oh, did I catch Hannah off guard? Cut My, Hannah off, you're slipping, sorry, you're bonded on. My bad, that was an accident. <laughs> sorry about no that. No worries, no worries. What's in your mind? 
Hannah, what's on your mind tonight? Oh, oh, she just nexted herself. It's okay, Hannah. Get back in the queue and I'll come for you again. Um, let's try Steve. What's on your mind tonight, Steve? Oh, hello, Bree. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, of course. What's on your mind? Um, yeah, so Ralph Nader's uh, was talking about um, in today's show um, about uh, getting involved in local government. And also it's something I hear on a lot of other kind of lefty YouTube spaces about how like that's where our battle needs to be fought. And I don't necessarily disagree um, that it is one of our battlegrounds. Um, mm-hmm. I think some people who have not had much involvement in local politics may underestimate how strong um, the resistance is even at the local level. Mm. So, for example, like, you know, military industrial complex and big pharma and stuff control the federal government, various state governments generally controlled by agricultural interests. And at the local government, it's controlled by the Chamber of Commerce and also landlords primarily Mm. and they are quite powerful interests um as most of us know but my point is is that i have been involved in local government and exhausted ourselves talking a city council meeting that starts at six and often runs past midnight Mm -hmm. um almost every council meeting for the better part of a year on issues of mistreatment of unhoused folks on issues of, um, you know, land use policy um, and other very important things that actually affect our daily life, but also uh, often fly under the radar of most activists, things like land use policy and general general planning. Um, those are all worthwhile battles, but I can tell you spending all that time researching all the issues, going through all of the documents that are included on the agenda, sitting and having meeting with city staff and with uh, city council people and all that. And we still don't even get like minor concessions. Um, mm. And so I'm not what saying- What do you attribute that? It's just too um, captured? It's just too, the interests are just too strong? Money is a huge one, yeah, because even if it's not the same sums of money spent on, like, national and state campaigns, um, it's still a lot of money, like, more money than grassroots activists can pony up, you know what I mean? Um, And a lot of that money is coming from developers, right? That's why land use policy is such an important um, issue for local governments. Um, They're determining how the developers are going to be able to make their money. Um, I think some of it also is elitism because I know we pressed pretty hard. This was both with a DSA local that has since severed ties with the national organization, mm-hmm. um, over a lot of the stuff we've kind of been talking about and mm-hmm. it got absorbed into a nonprofit that deals primarily with undocumented folks, mm-hmm. um, and unhoused folks. But, um, there was a period of time for about a year and a half. We engaged pretty forcefully. I think Ralph Nader said, you know, send a bunch of people to the city council meeting and you'll get changed. But we had, you know, 20, 30 people there. We were turning out 50, 60 people for rallies and stuff on these issues. Just, I mean, just basic stuff like, hey, can we not like bust the heads of homeless people and provide them like 
a sanctioned camp spot instead of just constant harassment, we couldn't even get movement on that, turning out tons of bodies. I mean, these meetings, I'm telling you, dragged six, seven, eight hours sometimes. I think the latest one was like 1.30 in the morning and it mm. starts at 6 p.m. It's like, that's a lot of energy to expend, especially for, you know, most of us have to have day jobs, right? right. And since we don't have money, we can't pay for staff to do the organizing. So it's mm. just absolutely exhausting and we've gotten nothing does that um, lead you to some conclusion about what you see as the path forward or i mean it doesn't have to i'm not asking you to solve the world's problems but no I'm just of course curious. not yeah i mean i'm pretty cynical at this point and i think there's going there's there's really i'd like to say that kind of uh you know grassroots organizing um is going to be able to make even just, you know, small reforms to make a life a little bit more bearable for the masses. But I, I don't think it's going to happen. I honestly think that conditions will continue to decline until people are forced to act. And that's going to be, you know, a, a expansion of, of uh, street protest, basically, and real kind of more um, revolutionary kind of, uh, organizing and formation. So Did you I see don't have this, a lot um, of faith. Go ahead. I mean, I wonder, I wonder if sometimes a, a charitable view of where so many longtime leftists have ended up with the kind of incrementalist approach, a charitable view might be they really did sincerely try to do the thing. And like what you're describing is what they've encountered. And they just said, you know, I, like I, I we can't, and so I'm I'm gonna celebrate getting coffins for people who died for, from COVID, and whatever other you know pay go, <laughs> whatever else, because that truly is what I believe the limit of our ability is, which is a little sad, but maybe gives some credit to a kind of a more accelerationist approach. Did you did you see did you see those um, I saw I scrolled by the story today. I can't vouch for it. I just saw it on Twitter. But a bunch of people in France like went and just like chopped up, chopped up a cement factory with axes. Do you see that? Like they just I, they had these hazmat suits on, and it's apparently like the biggest polluter in the region. And people just went and like with like construction sledgehammers and just like dismantled the the facility. I had not seen that, but it fits within my understanding of what effective um direct action looks like right like sometimes mm -hmm. you just got to get to that point where you're like you know we're okay fine we've exhausted uh you know legislative channels and now it, it we're we cannot do we cannot express our objection to this project and get you to hear that and act on it so we will act on it ourselves um yeah yeah, I, that, you know, who knows what is happening there and what came of it. But the fact that they keep ratcheting up the um, criminal penalties for protesters in the United States suggests to me that they know that that's what's coming. When they're throwing environmental activists, that woman, I'm so sorry, I always blink on her name. You guys always correct me. But that woman um, who was jailed for, I think, nine years for protesting at one of these pipelines. And now we see, I don't forget who brought it up at the beginning of the call, um, the 
the spill now that is giving, getting so little coverage and it's like completely predictable. But the people who are prote- protesting it before the accident actually happens are like literally incarcerated for longer than folks who have murdered. I mean, Sam Bankman Freed, who, if you missed it, finally did get arrested today, is likely to see less jail time than environmental activists because they know how much power comes from those kinds of actions. Yeah, also, that's why you saw some of the, the blowback against the paint and the soup and all that stuff with the art museums. Because that's like a little thing, but it's like it's actually attacking the thing that rich people like. I mean, and, and everybody likes. I'm not saying that art is just for rich people or anything. But you know what I mean? There, there's, there's something like I think potent and transgressive about it that is genuinely worrying to the establishment. Yeah, 100%. The ruling class is hip to what is happening, and they have controls of the levers of power, and they will not give them up. And so they know they know the logical end point of this. So you're absolutely correct in drawing attention to um, increased penalties, um, etc. And I mean, Jesus Christ, we're, uh, I mean, it's, it's always happened. Let's not pretend that, it, that this is a new phenomena in the United States or in the world broadly, but like they're dis- like people disappear, right? Like we have all manner of political prisoners in this country. Um, and we are going to continue to see more of that. I don't, I don't doubt that at all. Um, yeah. But that's kind of one of the things that's why like conditions have to get worse. Cause I think we're all hip, hip is the wrong word. We, we are all aware of the fact that like to really resist this system is going to end up in our imprisonment or death, right? Like yeah. most resistance movements um, throughout, you know, human history, like they kind of get to that point where they're like, things can't really get worse. Like I kind of already feel like I'm dead and, or mm-hmm. I kind of already feel like I'm in a prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're willing to, you know, take those risks, but like yeah. things I think, have to get a little worse because I think we still are a little too comfortable. Go yeah, ahead, I think that that's right. You guys know I'm sitting on my sofa. <laughs> on oh, my yeah, new sofa, was... altogether too comfortable. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, but I, th- I think that's completely true, which is why, I don't know, I have been increasingly open to having these accelerationist arguments in a way that I wasn't in 2020 when, you know, people like Noam Chomsky, you know, were really pushing back hard. Uh, and there was a real... You know, there's a characterization of an, an accelerationist or someone who is willing to even take a chance at something better with the possibility of something worse being in the outcome. You know, there was this, the rhetoric says, you know, you're privileged to, you can take the hit and how dare you do that to all of these, you know, poor working class people, black and brown people, marginalized for other reasons, people. And there's never any conversation about how the status quo grandfathers those people into endless generations of misery. So, you know, shout out to Jessica Res, uh, Resnick, um, Resnick, sorry. Uh, thank you, uh, whoever in the chat put her name in there, who is, sending, is serving an eight-year sentence for a series of what Wikipedia describes as attacks. I will describe as um, righteous protests at the Dakota Access Pipeline. And, of course, the Dottinger story we're all very familiar with. And it's it's terrifying. But um, when you brought in it out, I remember one of the first articles, I think maybe the first article I ever edited at The Intercept was a piece by, um, wow, I need to I need to get my mental faculties together. Uh, she's been on the podcast. She's an environmental reporter. Uh, she was at The Intercept. She is no longer. I think she's at The American Prospect. Um, and it was about all of the 
environmentalists who had been murdered around the world in advance of, I think it was COP26 at the time, one of the cops, COP24, it was years ago. Uh, and it was terrifying because I, I remember thinking I had no idea that there was this sheer volume of activists just straight up murdered all across the world that just don't even get coverage. So anyway, thanks for calling in, Steve. And I will be going to Jade next. All right. Thank you. Keep the faith. What's on your mind tonight, Jade? Hi. Um, you know, I just want to agree with a lot of what the previous caller said. Uh I think, I mean, I've, I've been a community organizer for like the better part of 10 years. And I uh, was organizing uh, against police crimes in my community mm-hmm. for, the, for the most part. And uh, we, you know, like we were, we've been very effective at mobilizing people to come out. We've done pack-ins at city council meetings. We've done call-in campaigns, writing campaigns, um, showing up to community like public or like any kind of like public forum that um, local government has. And it's, it's always an uphill battle, but like probably the biggest thing that happened was um, uh, you know, it, we were working on legislation for a ballot initiative around organizing independent civilian review boards for, uh, you know, to review police misconduct in our community. And we were on the local radio. We like had like a, um, a pa- part of a panel discussion at the university. Uh, we were getting lots of uh I don't know, just support and exposure for this idea around community control. And then um, we were <laughs> blindsided by uh, the Fraternal Order of Police and a couple of a representative, state representative and a state senator who sponsored a bill that made it illegal to um, create uh, independent civilian review boards. Mm-hmm. Uh, like on a state level. And we also were up there, we we lobbying, talking to all the reps we could. We were able to um, get a few to like come in and support us. But then in the public uh, comment section, a lot of the um, other organizations that, or, you know, like that we're friendly with, like in our coalition broadly, um, you know, like some of them were able to speak but no one who even worked on the legislation was allowed, like at the time was so limited, we weren't even allowed to say anything. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of just took us back to square one, you know, like, and this was like, I mean, hours and hours of work and effort. Like we met every weekend to write legislation, which none of us knew how to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, we did have like some help from like um, some guidance because we were using legislation that was written for Chicago mm-hmm. um, and adapting it to our city, which is a very different city, very, like very different. Um, so we, we had to do a lot of revision and um, to make it like, you know, something that could work here. And uh, yeah, and it, it was just frustrating. And then, you know, all of those hours, um, like basically working a second job 
well, actually like a third job on top of like, you know, doing, going to work every day and everything was just absolutely exhausting. And really, uh, then it felt like, you know, we, we didn't know what to do at that point. And I will say, you know, like we were able to make some minor changes to local, um, to our uh, local city as far as like body cam footage. There was um, a case where a Somali teenager who was homeless was shot by police. He, he didn't die, um, he was, but he was like paralyzed. Mm. And um, they didn't release the body cam footage for months on end. So we, we through that, um, and all of our efforts and pushing and stuff, they, they did create a new policy that it would be released within a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like, that's like one, one thing we were able to accomplish, but we we're also out like, uh, doing, you know, also in support of like, um, the, the unsheltered, the camp abatements that happen regularly in our city where they just bulldoze everyone's belongings and take mm-hmm. them just all of it. And, um, but I will say, you know, for some people who aren't convinced that electoral politics aren't the answer or that voting is just enough, I do think that there can be some benefit to engaging in those types of, that type of work to kind of reveal just how corrupt and how, um, uh, you, you know, just how, difficult and pointless that is I don't know I I think maybe some people who who want to see good policies and want to see quality of life improve for everyone but don't have have an understanding that um yeah that that politics are just so captured by corporations by developers like on the local level by just interests of the wealthy that you know they kind of need to go through that process to understand mm-hmm. it but mm-hmm. it's, it's like completely pointless but it is uh but just i don't know also in our state there was a ballot initiative to um to decriminalize marijuana that did mm-hmm. pass but then the legislature went back and um revoked the ballot initiative that was passed by popular vote and they did they made it rec like uh recreational marijuana legal so or not recreational um medical mm-hmm. they did a medical marijuana but it's it's it is frustrating and honestly i i had a baby last year i mm. have been organizing for the last several months I've been having conversations with people here on call in like Amanda and, you know, I, but it's hard cause I don't know where to put my efforts exactly, um, at this point, uh, because it just feels so like, you know, just demoralizing that, um, we have to fight so hard for breadcrumbs, <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. It's just frustrating. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like you were saying, you know, those are arguments on both sides of the value of engaging in traditional mm-hmm. electoral politics. On one hand, 
what you're saying and what I've been really struck by Nick from RBN saying is how much he was radicalized by his experience um, canvassing for Bernie, participating in the Bernie campaigns, how much he learned about the system and the limits of it as well. So, I mean, it, it, it both ended up radicalizing him, which I think is a good thing, but also can serve to you know, demoralize people or kind of inure people to the limits, um, you know, kind of make them feel like they should only reach as far as the limits that, that have been set by the systems yeah. that we typically engage with. And we've seen that with a number of guests on the show who I think are wonderful people and are trying their best and who have done really important things over the course of their careers. But when I look at, you know, James Zogby, I think that it's such an instructive lesson about, you know, he's telling us the limitations of, you know, being on the D, a part of the DNC and working from within. And at the same time that I'm learning so much from him and I'm valuing that experience as, as an educational tool, it also feels like for him personally, it's not something that he's willing to kind of give up on, which is fine, you know, to each their own yeah. and, you know. But, you know, it, it can it can have like a stagnating effect, arguably, and also a galvanizing effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think maybe uh, trying to, I don't know, just be aware of that when you are engaging in local things with people and, you know, um, summing up the experience and trying to uh, reevaluate, like, where your energies can be put. But, like, then we live in a country where there's, like, no guaranteed sick leave, you know? Like, the rail workers are asked for seven days. Like, uh, yeah. there's more than 145 countries in the world that have, like, guaranteed paid off, like, sick time off. And... Uh, like 123 of those are for at least seven days or longer. And um, they, I mean, it's, it's just like inhumane to be like, to be denied that. And to see like, you know, Ryan saying that um, everyone's blaming the squad, like it's their fault that rail workers didn't get paid time off or like sick days. That's, I don't think that's what, you know, we're feeling or doing. It's yeah. just that if the most progressive elements that we have can't even support, like, one of the most basic needs that people might, like, have in a job, then what what can we do, you know? Like, I think it's just disappointing. It's disappointing that, um, yeah, I... <laughs> I don't, yeah, I look, I totally so agree, Jade. That, that I just, yeah. Yeah, it's frustrating that that framing is what it is and that, you know, Ryan kind yeah. of persists in that, in that framing. Um, ironically, I do think that him injecting himself into this debate made it much more of a thing than it ever would have been. If the vote had happened, yeah. we would have tweeted, oh, yeah, like I wish the progressive hadn't voted for it and we all would have gone about our business because there's nothing we can do or say. Ryan doing the thing where he runs cover, mm-hmm. AOC doing the thing where she set out this excuse that didn't make any sense, just like enforce the vote, like made it, like exposed the extent to which there was something that obviously some folks felt like they needed to apologize for. And now we're having this debate over something that should have just been an obvious fact. You shouldn't have voted for this bill. Moving on. <laughs> you know? Anyway, thanks yeah. for calling in, Jade. I appreciate everything that you've had to say today. Oh, I have one 
one thing. Like, I guess what I'm feeling right now it, recently is just that, you know, we might not win, but we need to keep fighting. Um, join organizations in your area. And like, I think just focus on fighting for the basic rights of people like Medicare for all, like free public education, debt relief. And, um, you know, we might not have short term success, but when everything falls apart, which I think it will, <laughs> then people are going to turn to those who they saw advocating and fighting for them. And we mm. need all the people that we can get when when the time comes. Mm. So I don't think it's a waste of time to be out there advocating for, you know, yourself, for our communities, for our families, for the future and and doing what we can. Um, so, yeah. Thank, yeah, thank I agree you. with that, Jade. And I think it's that's okay. part of why the folks over at RBN stress mutual aid. And I think they're right to do so. But thanks for calling in again. OK. All right. Keep the faith. Uh, Everton, let's go to you. What's on your mind? I think you're a new face. Can you unmute yourself, Everton? Hello? Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. What's on your mind tonight? Um, okay, so this is just my analysis of leftist groups, YouTubers, and etc. I don't understand why there's so many leftist organizations and different movements and theories and etc. The world is based on commerce and the left never talks about money or financing. Theory is good, but like people need food, clothing, shelter, and etc. That's kind of what I was trying to say that if you guys are trying to convince people to be more radical, then you need to first eliminate their daily necessities which are things like food, clothing, shelter. We have all of these leftist um, leaders like Cornel West and Ralph Bader and et cetera, and none of them actually have ever created any type of foundation or structure that goes out and does what Rome does, which is to feed people, give them food, clothing, and shelter. That's actually the main, like that's what the Black Panthers did, which is why out of all the radical movements, they were the most semi-successful, but America and the world is based on money and things. Why isn't the left pulling all of these large corporations, like large leftist movements, Sunrise, this and that, and actually create businesses that are based on leftist ideology, that have horizontal structures, that are providing community for Americans so they can see that there's something different outside of capitalism. That's just something I've never understood, and I don't see any conversation about actually the left operating as a business instead of just theories and ideas. Well, I, I don't know if I would characterize it as, as a business, but Everton, isn't that just what the last guest, wait yeah. a minute, Everton, isn't that literally what the last caller just was talking about? Yes, in I think in a roundabout way, but I still, it's, like, the, again, it's it's the callers and such, but the people who are the head of the leftist movement, that's what I mean. Like, the discussion, I've never heard that discussion coming from them. It's the people who are not the podcasters that don't have a platform who sees that and want that, but the people who are in charge or the people who we go to for advice never bring that up. Well, again, I, I don't know about never bring that up. I think... Several callers tonight have already brought it up. 
the people over at Revolutionary Blackout Network bring it up a lot, and I think we all appreciate but that. Not the rule, and again, the uh, the other part of the left completely ignores their existence. They they don't get the I guess left media push that they should. But again, I'm just saying that you know a lot of people want to be more active, but without their daily needs met, you're literally stuck. And it's just a cycle of people saying the right things, but live in a world of capitalism that doesn't provide them with the resources to do anything but speak. Yeah, I, I think that's really legitimate, um, Everton. But, it, you know, I think the reality is that it's difficult. And that but, it's a lot easier to talk than to do. I, I'm not making excuses, but, I mean, let me ask you this, Everton. I mean, are you, and I, I don't mean this as a gotcha at all. But, mm-hmm. you know, are you participating in mutual aid projects? Because, I mean, Absolutely. I'm just saying it's, it's no, time-consuming, it's hard, and I, that's why I have so much respect for the people, like, over at RBN who are coordinating this kind of stuff. I just appreciate, like, I'm not a leftist. I grew up middle class. My goal is to get out of the middle class and go into the upper middle class. Like, I don't, I've never struggled, never done any of that. But I, I see what you guys talk about, and I agree with it more than I do with capitalism. But I'm a capitalist. I want to be comfortable. I don't ever want to struggle or any of that. That's not my goal. That's my intentions. I have a finite amount of time on this planet. But the, like, I don't think anything you guys want is impossible. I know it sounds impossible, but it's not impossible. It's just America is a commerce-based society, money and things, and people, that's how people in America view the world. But if we don't have a secondary system that's also existed within capitalism, they will never know anything else exists. You, there could be businesses out there that make the profit while also feeding people or closing them or giving them shelter. Real estate doesn't have to be speculative. It doesn't have to. Um, you don't have to have a real estate company that does application fees and all of that other stuff. You can create left-leaning capitalism type of businesses and it's not full, you know, I don't know what to call it. It's like a co-op, but a, on a large scale that covers the industries that the capitalists that you guys are fighting against are in. I don't know if that makes sense. So, just- so yeah, Everton, you know, there are a lot of theory heads that I'm sure would love to get into the weeds with this stuff with you. But I think part of how we frame it is that there's a there's a difference between markets and capitalism. I think that what you're describing with, you know, wanting to be able to provide yourself and have a business and make things and sell things, I don't think that there's any real objection to that. The focus that a lot of folks on the left has have is, should we structure these businesses around the profit motive solely as an objective in a way that often causes human beings to be poor, lacking in their basic needs, and be in a position where they need the kind of mutual aid that we started this conversation Yes, meeting, or or if I could just finish the sentence, Everton, or should those businesses have a different goal and be worker owned, so that the people who are actually creating the profit through their labor have some say in what the priorities are of the business, so that it's not just about squeezing it out every last dime, but also making sure the employees are paid well, not making profits that can return to shareholders, but making sure a business, let's say, stays in the community and not be shipped overseas, so that they can get more money out of a lower wage standards, et cetera. And, and so, you know, does that sound 
Does that well, sound? Yeah, that's a co-op, and I agree. I believe in co-op. I would like to mm-hmm. eventually form one myself one day. But my my question isn't that. My thing is, why isn't anyone on the like the the left leadership that we have? It, for example, how the who, who do you think is the left leadership? Because, you know, Bernie Sanders, for instance, I know we, a lot of us in this chat have some frustrations with him for all the reasons. But well, one of the main, saying. wait a minute, one of the main um, policy, his, his, I think his most significant policy platform was his labor platform that incentivized um, cooperative businesses that made it easier for workplaces to unionize, enormously more, more simple for workplaces to unionize. And it kind of an enormous effect in pushing us toward a more equitable, democratized workplace. Yes, but okay, my thing is, and this could just be me looking at it the way I see it. You have, again, a lot of these leftists, for whatever reason, do have access to capital. But they never use that access to capital to push leftist ideas like co-ops. They talk about them and they will support them, but they don't. Start them. They don't. Everton, you're, so you're you're arguing that more leftists should start more co-ops. Yes, like the the people who have access to capital. Okay. Actually, put their money where their mouth is. I think, unfortunately, Everton, most of the people who many many of the people to whom for whom socialism and left politics is appealing don't in fact have very much access to capital. I would I would I would gather. That, well, first of all, most people are not business owners in the old country, regardless of their political leanings. But I, I don't expect that many people in this chat are business owners. I guess I am. Okay, but <laughs> Hi, welcome to my podcast what, business. Yeah, but but I'm thinking, like, okay, you have, let's just use Sanders since we just talked about him. He mm-hmm. created amazing books that made millions and multi-millions of dollars. Two you million know, dollars, yeah. dollars. Could he have not, you know, created a co-op, hired leftist-leaning managers in his state of Vermont, and then once that had started, and sex will move on to the next state adjacent to it? And I, I mean, I, Everton, I will say that writing a book is not a business. But you know what I'm saying? He just needs to fund it. The left has right, but what's the business? Fund. I'm sorry, you want Bernie? You want to force Bernie Sanders to start a business with the proceeds from his well, book? Not. not Force, but like just show a different type of existence outside of capitalism. Look, I'll, I'll tell you this, Everton. One of the most, you know, I, I you, you keep, I, I would, I would, I would suggest humbly that you maybe step a little bit away from words like never and nobody, because I think there is some left history that you just might not be aware of. For example, one of the most, you know told stories about Bernie Sanders as mayor of Burlington, Vermont, is that Burlington was a city that was really in disarray because of a declining population. There wasn't a single like grocery short store chain that wanted to be in the town. And so this modest, you know, town with still a good deal of people in it literally had no one to provide basic food services. And so Bernie started a co-op in Burlington and it became more profitable. In fact, than the pre-existing business that was there because of in part all the investment of the people in the town uh, and the desire to make it like actually good and serve their needs. So it's, it's a little difficult for me to hear the suggestion that there hasn't been these, haven't been these commitments both historically and in the present of leftists all around this country and people in this very chat doing exactly the kind of things that you describe. 
And if you'd like to be involved, a lot of people circulate links and get together in chat groups after the call-in and they meet up and they help to grow these kind of enterprises. So if you're really committed to helping to grow those sorts of things, there are a lot of people right here that I think are a little bit probably bristling at the suggestion they're not already doing exactly what you are advocating for. Well, I think it's just slightly misrepresentation. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. One, I, I knew that about Bernie, but my mm-hmm. thing is that was when he was unknown. Why isn't it being done now? Like my thing is what I'm trying to ask is why isn't the left not now that it's an actual thing in the conversation acting in that radical sense that they had in the past when they had no notoriety. Like, that's just what I'm trying to get a grip on. When they didn't have access or money, they were doing these things, but once they got that capital, they, they, well, maybe they're not pushing it anymore. They're not thinking in that manner anymore. I'll say this again. To do it. Again, Everton, not many people have capital. And even those of us who don't have capital are strategizing. I mean, last week we spent a lot over the course of the last couple of weeks, spent a lot of time talking about whether or not we should be giving to strike funds. A lot of us did donate to the RSWU um, strike fund link that we put out in an earlier episode. A lot of us, you know, became like an honorary member, uh, whatever they call it. You know, a lot of us are trying to figure out ways in which to support our, the railroad workers if they do decide to go on a legal strike and figure out how we can fundraise for that. I mean, these are very active conversations that we're having. And I agree with you. I do wish there were more being done at a higher profile. Do I wish squad members were involved in these kinds of projects? Do I wish Bernie Sanders hadn't um, broken down his organizing mechanism at the end of his campaign and was still fundraising, not for the Democratic Party, but was raising those huge sums that he was raising during the campaign, out fundraising everybody with grassroots dollars, to support exactly the kind of aid projects um, and community projects that you're describing. Yeah, I, I wish all of that were happening as well. So I don't mean to completely dismiss your criticism. Certainly there is a room for a lot more to be done. But I, I think that you're kind of preaching to the choir in this room. Everyone agrees that those are the things that need to be done. We are now in the, in the phase of just trying to figure out how to do it. So if you have any suggestions on how to do it, given that there is not a lot of capital in the room, I think the last we'd love to hear them talk to the people who know how to create capital, the left doesn't speak to the finance. Well, not the left. I'm sorry. I'm speaking to general. A majority of the left doesn't actually like those people, but those are the people who you need to speak to to understand how capitalism works and ways to either get around it or use it for your benefit. I think that's what I'm trying to just say. Because in order to create movements, you do need money. And in order to make get money, you need to know how to make money. So so this is the last thing I think I'm going to say on this every time before I think I have to move on. Uh-huh. But one of the principal understandings of how power works that we have on the left is that money isn't free. And when you start taking money from people whose interests don't align with yours, it often comes with strings attached. No, no, no. I'm following what's been going on with us. I like the mutual aid approach. What I'm saying is to go to actually learn how the capitalists run their capitalism. Right, but we're not confused about how capitalism works, Everton. Nobody here is like struck like, oh, Lord, if we could only start a business, then we could bring socialism. Like, I don't quite understand that trajectory that you're imagining for yourself. No one here is confused about how to make money. I was a corporate lawyer, Everton. 
like one of my best friends is like in-house counsel at JP Morgan from law school. Like I, I don't need, like I'm not unfamiliar with how capitalism works. But, I don't like it. It's bad. <laughs> you know? Yes. You know, it, I, you know, I'm not like a straight, I'm not like naive about how the world works, you know? <laughs> um, the, the whole point is that people I think in this chat understand all too well. And they one, they don't want to take money from and have close relationships with people who would be directing their political projects in ways that are system affirming rather than sister system undermining. And two, I don't think that people, I, I understand that there is a need for capital. There is a need for money to fund certain kinds of projects and sustain people who are very much on the margins. That's a, of course true, but I, 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 I don't think that. I think you're, you're thinking ahead of what I'm trying to say. Like, okay, for example, to buy a house, you would need to know how real estate works. But to believe it or not, a lot of people do not know how real estate works and no one is teaching them how real estate works. That's, I think that's what I'm trying to say. The left needs more lessons on those just like those type of things. So that, that way, when they come up against it, they, they know what the, the, the full beast is. And you may think that a lot of people know, but I'm a real estate agent. And 98% of the people that I help to purchase house don't know anything about real estate. And their family owns properties and et cetera. It's like, it's just, it's not something that people who talk in these spaces or the average who talk on Twitter fully understand, like how the actual mechanisms of the system they're living in works. Well, look, um, Everton, if we get to a place where we're, we're buying property um, for some, uh, what do you call it? Like a home base for some of these organizing projects, the way that the Black Panthers had and one kept getting firebombed, but never mind about that. Then maybe you can help us, Everton, secure the kinds of deals that we need so that our hard earned money doesn't go to waste and can be dedicated to mutual aid projects and more essential needs than just putting a roof over our um, organizational heads. So I, I hope you stick around. That is my personal goals, correct? Yeah, I hope I hope you stick around and are able to contribute to that. I, I'm an attorney, Everton. We have people in the chat who are, you know, EMTs and nurses and teachers who work in all kinds of walks of life, who all bring their individual professional expertise from capitalism because we all live in capitalism and we all learn things. We're not, you know, some like random when we're not like a Jacobin art article sprung to life animated, like a cookie cutout man. <laughs> I mean, like we all bring our personal experiences. I don't say that at all to undermine yours or that obviously you have to understand how the world works, but I do bristle a little bit at the implication that just because we're on the left, we don't know how the world works or, or somehow we're more lacking in expertise than anybody else who is, doing movement building or building a business or anything else that is going on in the world. We're just regular people in capitalism like everybody else, but who have identified that there has to be a better way. That's all. But I appreciate you calling Ever and Everton. It's been good to hear from you. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Um, I'm, Biden is not at, Biden is not at the front of the line, but I saw that he got kicked back and was um, going to be next before he lost his place. So I'm going to call on Bide. What's in your mind, Bide? I was there, you were there, you remember it. <laughs> you were there, you remember it. That's it. That song's really just about capitalism. 
um, and our experiences with it, honestly. Buy it um, or Swifty. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, had an ex who got me into Swift and then, uh, you know, you can, uh, you can lose the ex, but you can't lose Taylor. So what happened to you, bud? I'm not trying to get onto your personal business, but uh, I remember some yeah. very like lovely engagement photos and, you know, like what, now all of a sudden you popped up on the app talking about an ex and I'm out here in these streets. I see you in the comment sections, bud. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, um, I had an engagement fall through. Uh, I've been I've been there, bud. You know, I have I have been there. I was once an engaged woman. All right. Well, I won't belabor the point. I'm not being messy. No, it's okay. You guys are constantly prying into my life, a hundred percent of the time. I can't (laughs) float a light question to bide about a shared experience of having been previously engaged. It's I I actually I, I was happy. I think there was some episode where you mentioned that you had previously been engaged to, and I. I don't know. I felt a, a weird moment of solidarity. Like, oh, okay. So she too has eaten uh, $40 worth of banana pudding at night while watching television uh, <laughs> for about a month straight. <laughs> I mean, I will say that when I become single, I get in very good shape. So it's the opposite. But yeah. I did used to live in New York next to the um, that original Magnolia Bakery location. That's exactly uh, the Perry banana Street. pudding I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got one in Chicago. I know it's not the New York, but it's the same Magnolia Bakery. And mm-hmm. that I used that to banana pudding. Oh, do geez. regular jaunts, sprinting down the street, trying to get in there before mm-hmm. it closed. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. But, you know, it was it's good. I think it's been, what's it been? Uh, like, uh, it's almost eight, eight or ten how long? April, I think. Beginning of April. Um, so it's been a lot of months. I don't know. It's a good thing. I think once you find out that, I mean, the more I think about it, had we gone through with it, we were definitely going to get divorced. Like, there's no mm-hmm. way we were going to survive. Um, we just weren't. And she's cool. She's like a cool, really funny. Uh, she's how a good long have hang. you guys been dating before you got engaged? Something like three or four years. I can't remember oh, wow. exactly. I think it's four. Um, yeah, but we've been dating for a long time. I mean, before we got engaged, it was probably three years. And then the last year we were engaged. So you were engaged um, for a year. Does that mean that you guys had already done a good deal of planning? Yeah. Yeah, we were oh, supposed to get wolf. married in September. I know. Oof. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. Rough. I'm sorry, yeah. bud. No, nah, it is what it is, dog. You know, it's and, and honestly, it's a good thing. I think. I, I wish more people could like talk with their partners and stuff about it and make decisions that are hard like that. But I think both of us are doing better now because of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and plus, yeah. you know, it, but yeah. Yeah. let me tell you, I have zero regrets <laughs> about not marrying that man yeah. um, who was not cool. No, let me not be an asshole. Uh, it wasn't for me, shall we say. Uh, okay. But we also weren't engaged that long, so I didn't have to like unwind anything other than like a Facebook announcement. <laughs> yeah. Did you? Was it like? Okay. Now I have to ask a, a little bit of a question. Was it? Do you have any like insight into why you were engaged or why you said yes or? How oh, that I love to obviously, okay. but I what I didn't know is that like he hadn't. So what I didn't understand was that we had been dating not quite two years before we got engaged. And he had been dating a woman for seven years before me that he broke up with 
and I now understand very shortly before we met. And when we met, he stopped, he like re he like completely switched up his whole life in a way that I didn't realize at the time. So we stopped smoking, stopped doing some recreational drugs and he, um, kind of reinvented himself. I think he saw me as like, um, like yeah, a clean like slate the, or something. Yeah, the clean slate type. Yeah, I was a little yeah, younger than him. Like I was like a like a like a good girl, and he was gonna like mm. I was. I, he saw me as part of his like reform package. I think. Oh, but he still had that dog in him. Right. I didn't realize <laughs> yeah. this. I didn't realize this. So he had been yeah. dating for like seven years of grad school, and they had been in the trenches together. And she was older than him, and he yeah. was older than me. So she was probably about damn. ten years older than me. And. God, damn. Mm-hmm. So what I realized that I was the blip in their romance, <laughs> and yeah. they got together after we broke up almost immediately. Oh, I understand and got no. married and had kids. Oh no! Which, no, but which is fine. Like yeah. really, uh, I wouldn't have done anything. I would have been some horrible lawyer housewife somewhere in Connecticut, being or God forbid Toronto, being deeply unhappy. Sorry, yeah. sh- sorry. No offense to my Canadians out there, but woof. Yeah, but come on. Um, those winters. Stop. Yeah, this is whole <laughs> that 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 wasn't your future. That wasn't your future. Damn, man. Well, I mean, at least, uh, well, you know what? I'm not gonna compliment the dude in any way. I was gonna say at least he. No, he was kind of a pill. Him. I mean, we we're all complicated, yeah, yeah, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's anyway. wild. That's wild. Yeah, well, all's well that ends well. So, Bide, I know you didn't call in to tell me all of the messy details about your love life. What did you call to talk to me about today? uh yeah not i mean it's not a bad thing though i'm always down for the dating episodes uh those are fun uh one thing i will say well i'm not gonna get into it right now but going back out there and dating has been a weird experience well what what part of town you're in chicago right i'm in chicago so yeah there's like there's plenty of single people you know it's not like you don't have young right you're like 32 or something i'm 33 yeah i'm about to be 34 but I'm, i'm i'm young enough um and you're an attorney, so Biden, you're telling me you're not out here just, like, picking up digits and taking names? I, and I, I mean, I think, if I'm going to be real, what I've discovered about the dating scene now is I, I think women have it hard out here, man. I'm going to be real. I'm going to be real, real. Um, <laughs> you don't have to explain it to me. Oh, my God. Some of the stories I've heard on these dates about their other dates... I like, are you, are you serious? Like, are you really like some girl was telling me that like she went on a date and this guy that she was with just showed up. He was super drunk and they went to go get uh, food somewhere. And he just started, it was like one of those family style steakhouses or something. You know, they bring out all the dishes like, Mm -hmm. uh, and you serve yourself from them. So they bring out this big plate of green beans. He just starts grabbing them with his hand and just starts eating them just straight out, just straight up. And I'm like, this dude was a doctor. And I'm like, what the, like, what's, what is, like, what's I, going on out here? He, what's happening? Because he was drunk? No, I don't know. I don't, I, like, look, that has to go a little deeper. Like, I've been drunk. You don't just automatically become a motherfucking caveman, right? Like, no offense to cavemen or nothing, but, like, they're cool. But, like, Okay, what? so, but by the story, the real story is, so this woman is telling you about her bad dates, presumably because she feels like you're an improvement on the mean. So what did you, what happened with her? Why? What? Are, uh, why are you not following up these cool. women? No, no, no. Her, her. We're, we're, we're still. Um, we're, we're, we, we're still like dating. You know. What okay. I mean? So she's cool. She's cool. Um, okay. So what's the like, problem I, from your perspective? I understand how you don't have to explain to me by the challenges that face women out in the dating market. But what's your excuse? This is okay. So this is the. <laughs> uh, 
I think what I realize now is I see how people, this is going to sound weird, but I, I swear I can explain it. But I see how people like Jordan Peterson have been like getting big with men and stuff. Mm. And I, I see that there is a lack, you know, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? FD signifier, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a YouTuber and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he, there, there is a gap, I think, in sort of content. I don't know if it's content or just lessons or instruction or what to like, to men. And we're losing a lot of like dudes along the way in that they don't know how to act or interact with people. And I think that like what they turn to is they start turning to this like wild shit that like Jordan Peterson's bringing out this sort of like, oh, your position as a man has been, uh, you know, it's been robbed from you by destruction of Western culture. What do you mean they don't know how to act with people? Is this one of those, there's no traditional role for men in society anymore? So people while out and start eating green beans with their toes? No, I think that men don't realize (laughs) how much they've been damaged by patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And now that there's no uh, sort of th- – men are not like, you know, they're not going to, like, therapy. They're not doing – and I, I'm just speaking real generally. Uh, most of the dudes in this chat, for sure, do not fall into this category as far as, far as I know. Um, but, like, there's a lot of guys who, like, are not – they have a lot of these feelings and these, like, ideas about – what their role is supposed to be and what a woman's role is supposed to be and all this, uh, like a bunch of toxic shit that they've just kind of picked up through living in a patriarchal society. And they haven't, they have like a lot of them don't have the tools to kind of deconstruct their own purpose or their own like identity. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Please. So I got a guy, he's a friend of mine. He's one of the coolest dudes ever. His name is Bobby. He's a shit, uh, good looking guy starting his own business and is like a young, young millionaire type thing. And a good dude actually like wants to give it up and then wants to do other stuff and whatever. Um, mm, and so what is Sam, Sam Bankman Freed's problem in the dating market? <laughs> <laughs> so I knew you were going to say something about effective altruism <laughs> or something like that. It's not like that. He's not like that, but he was like, he, uh, you know, I remember in college, he was a, like a biomechanical engineer or something like that. Biomedical engineer, I think. And, and, basically was made the the decision to sort of not date and everything, focus on his career and get to where he needed to get to before he got into romance. And so uh, years later, here he is, he's a couple years older than me, but he's just starting to date. And a lot of the way that, you know, I'm going out, he's like, hey, let's go out, let's go talk to some people, let's go whatever. So I'm wingmanning for him and everything. But a lot of the way, like, He's going out with these guys, and this is like a guy who's like super nice, not toxic at all. Like this is a guy who, when I was in college and I was like acting up, he would be the most mature one and say some shit that ended up making me rethink what I was doing, right? Really put together guy. But some of the ways that he was going about like meeting people and everything are almost like from pickup artist type shit, you know? Well, it's like like this, what? Well, like, okay, you got to approach some, well, it's less him and more of some of the guys that he was going out with that he met from like these speed dating events. So he goes to these speed dating events. I know it's very cute. Him and like these other dudes and they meet each other there and they become bros, but they come out, you know, they're wearing like the, 
the piece of flair or whatever the fuck you're supposed to do to like not make yourself hat. stand out. No, it's not a hat, but like, you know, it'll be like one big, like, it's a little more like, you know, it'll be like a Supreme sweatshirt or something nowadays. Like just something to like, I don't know, stand hype, out. But hype beast tell. wear. Okay. Yeah, a hype beast. Yeah, a little bit hype beasty. Right. Um, Y'all are younger I, I than me because I've never seen someone in real life wearing a Supreme sweatshirt out in these streets. Yeah, well, you are lucky. So congratulations. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go out with them. And I remember one time we were all out and one of his friends, who I won't name, but he comes up to me and the first thing he says, he's wearing like a suit jacket, pant, you know, like a sport coat. He looks good. Mm-hmm. He's a good looking mm-hmm. guy. And he's a, a, a astro, a, what do you call it? Astronomer, astronomer mm-hmm. uh, at, at like University of okay. Chicago. All right. I, 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 look, Brie, all the things, like literally the stars are aligning for this guy. <laughs> the right? stars and, are aligning? Literally for this guy, right? <laughs> uh, and the first thing he says to me is, yeah, I already made out with two girls since I've been here. And then I just go, I just ask him because, you know, I'm, we're like old now to me. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. so I, I go, okay, are you, are you interested in them, in them or why? Like, what's the, what's the goal here? And we talked for a long time. Turns out he had a lot of problems with his dad and doesn't know how to approach women and was one of these awkward kids forever who didn't know. And now everything that he's doing and the way that he approaches women is treating them like they're this fucking like alien ass species that you have to do like these displays of like masculinity and dominance and other shit and this is like no i don't well i think i think that's been one of my saving graces in particular is like sisters right but you guys have got to get yourself sisters i don't know what to do if your parents (laughs) didn't give you a sister and you're a heterosexual man trying to be out here in the shoes i don't know what to tell you you're at a severe disadvantage yeah yeah you really are and and but but like you know they're like so many guys just to see people out here who, you know, they have all the, the, the shit that they should have together or whatever, or not that they should have, because I'm, frankly, I don't think anyone in this world, especially in America right now, can really have anything together with the kind of systematic, I don't know, like the failings that are happening all around us. It's hard to really act like we have our shit together. But, you know, to the extent that like someone like my friend would be out here thinking that, this is the most like this is his best chance to approach girls and it's funny because then we went to like some like zook class or something like that which is i guess some kind of dance like i don't know if it's brazilian or something but it's like a mm. it's like a uh like a salsa or something like that right okay. so he's going to these That's classes cute. it mm-hmm. what it was very cute and it was also uh i thought it was kind of brilliant that he was taking these classes and everything because it was just they had they already had a lack of like dudes there to take this class and i'm like oh my god this is a mm-hmm. better way to meet people you get to learn how to dance and then you can talk to them mm-hmm. but the thing that was wild is that like there was there were people there who were absolutely like giving him looks and everything what and are you giving him looks? Like, is it because of his hat no no. <laughs> <laughs> no no it wasn't because of his hat no no oh god that's funny that's funny uh no but like he ended up he ended up actually dating one of the girls from there for a while because I was like, yo, she have you tried talking to her? She seems like she really likes you. And he was mm-hmm. just like, oh, I don't think she likes me. It's I, I don't. Oh, you like, guys. I, I, OK, first of all, dance class, like oblivious. Excellent idea. This time last yeah. year, I was dating a guy who in a former part of his career in his younger life had been a professional salsa dancer. And we went to a salsa class here in D.C. And oh, it was extremely irritating because the ratios were. 
bad for girls, as they always are. But I came with a professional salsa dancer, but they made us share. <laughs> and, like, rotate around the room. And as I, like, was watching him, everyone, like, wanted to dance with him because he knew what yeah. he was doing. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, this is pickup central. Like, this is yeah. – this is yeah. such an easy pickup. Like I'm seeing, yeah. I'm seeing this. <laughs> so like, I just, they're, like women are so easy. Men, men, my heterosexual men in the audience, there was a lot of you. Mm-hmm. I just want to tell you that women are not from Venus or any other planet. They just want you to be nice. Mm-hmm. Do you have it in you to be nice? Hello. It's nice to meet you. I appreciate you having taken the time out of your day to come to this place with me that is not your comfortable home. I would like to make this experience enjoyable by asking you questions about yourself to try to discern what you like and don't like in this world and then try to facilitate the positive parts of this experience based on the knowledge that you're telling me through conversation. Right. Right. Is that the worst? Is that so terrible? I mean, we're all meeting uh, on the app, so we know what each other looks like. And on some level, there's already an expectation of some baseline level of attraction. Right, right, right. I, so what's I, the problem here? What's the problem? Like, so often, it's just, yeah. don't fuck it up. Can you just yeah. not fuck it up? Can you just, like, not say something that makes me forced to get up and walk out of here? Can you try to use the utensil when you reach for the green beans? Can I be honest, though, about yes. this? I think the just being nice, I think that's an element of it, but that's not really what, I think it's not in my experience what people are actually looking for on dates. And maybe this is just selection bias or whatever. Be nice, but what they want you to be, honestly, is at least in my experience, my thing is always like, look, we're going out. I don't really know you, you don't know me. Let's just try to be as real as possible, get to know each other and whatever else happens, I'm going to try to make this like, this is going to be fun. Like you won't be bored. You know, yes, it and should be fun. My, again, my girlfriends are like, this is a bad yeah, date. Fun, Cause he's not my fun. husband. Yeah. I don't care if he's not my, I don't think it's a bad date just because we're clearly not going to see each other or have a, like, a relationship. To me, it's only a bad date. Like I, if I enjoyed, I can enjoy you without actually wanting to be with you. And I, exactly. I think that a lot of women who exactly. get burned out and men, I guess who get burned out, they are having the wrong approach. You cannot go into yeah. it being like, oh, this is a failure because I don't see a like, 20-year future with this person. Right. It's just or even like, an experience. Like, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. We don't even know each other yet, dude. Like, no offense to, to you, but that's why we're coming out here is to get to know each other. So, like, let's not put so much, like, th- if, if this isn't the one, that's cool. But I want you to find your one, and I want to find my one. You know, or, you know, whatever you're into kind of thing. Like, maybe you got your two, your five, <laughs> whatever it is. But, like, like. Wait, what's I a two in your five? What do you mean? I don't know. I'm talking about people who are, like, polyamorous what? or, poly, you know, whatever. Like, if Oh, you, oh, oh, sorry, you know, sorry, who, sorry. I, I, it's yeah, a poly yeah. joke. I'm too old for poly jokes. I'm sorry. We didn't have it's that okay. back when I was in these streets. It's okay. We're out here. <laughs> We're out here. Well, not, I don't include myself there because I'm not. But, like, uh, they're definitely out here uh, in Chicago for sure. But, you know, like, I think. I think there's too much of people, people are approaching uh, dates a lot of the times, like, like it's a series of uh, actions you have to get correct. Like it's a test or like it's a job interview where really it's like, it's not just you kind of showing up. Like there are elements of that to like a job interview, 
which you can take and use for dates, right? Like uh, dress nice, make sure you smell good or that you're clean, you know, just basic stuff. Like show up presentable, <laughs> right? That's, that's the job interview stuff. But after that, you needed to also treat it like you can't be desperate for a job in this. You know what I mean? You have to like, you're trying to figure out whether or not this is the right workplace for you. Is this the right company for you kind of thing, right? So you're both trying to get to know each other. And like, there should be no real stakes to it. Like, there's no real stakes. It's totally okay. That's the other thing is a lot of guys are not like, there's a lot of dudes out here who don't know really how to deal with rejection because they take it personally when rejection could be for so many reasons, you know, so many, like it's, it's not, it's hard to tell someone don't take it personally at first, but it's not like a, it, it, there's a lot of times it's not even about you, dude. It's really not. And that is, that is true. That is true. And I'm bringing, I'm bringing Isaiah up to, to, to speak to this from an LGBT perspective, because that's what they're saying they're up to in the chat. And I'm going to make this, we're making this a panel discussion since we're on this relationship (laughs) bent. Isaiah, unmute yourself and (laughs) speak your shit. Bree. These boys. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hear it, Isaiah. It is rough out here in these streets. (laughs) Like, I'm not asking for much. The bar is in hell. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I want you to have a haircut. Maybe have that beard shaved. You know, maybe have a job, please. Like, I if you it. can. Yo, you were already asking. Your bar is so much higher than mine. A haircut. <laughs> I say it's COVID out here. These men are getting haircuts. <laughs> okay, watch a YouTube tutorial or something then. But, like, figure that shit out. Like, it is rough out here, and there is no, like... So I think part of the problem is that, I think specifically for gay men, at least, like, within my community, Mm -hmm. there is no, like, uh, template for, like, how they should behave, like, when it comes to dating, or, like, like, how they should interact, or, like, how to actually go about, like, turning this one-on-one interaction that we have into something sustainable in the long term. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of like weird, almost like mating call esque behavior that, <laughs> that I've been experiencing from these boys. And say more. What are the mating it's... calls like? So <clears throat> Okay, I don't want to get too messy. <laughs> oh, come on. It is almost but... ten thirty at night. It's the time for mess. <clears throat> so I went on a date with this guy, like, Mm -hmm. mm, two weeks ago? Mm -hmm. Something like that. And it was going well initially. Like, everything seemed to be going fine. But he kept, like, for one, like, he kept flexing, like, where he went to school, like, like, what he studied, like, da-da-da-da, and, like, like, all of that. And, like, there was a huge emphasis on, like, those aspects. Mm -hmm. Um, Because he, and, and... I, I was talking to him later on, and I was like, okay, like, this is kind of weird, like, da 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 And he explained to me that, like, he was told that that sort of behavior or, like, acting, like, trying to flex, mm-hmm. like, like, 
was the way to like reel in people because previously like he'd had a lot of trouble with dates and didn't really know what he was doing but he found that a lot of people responded very well to like that sort of chauvinism Mm -hmm. and it's possible i mean people on these apps especially they make such snap judgments in part because there's so little to go off of that i do i mm -hmm. i wouldn't be surprised that he's right when he says that leading with that sort of stuff has has led to some success for him but it's disgusting. Yeah, I know. I mean, <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> like, I don't know. And it's, Brie, it's just been rough out here. Like I, like I said, like, I'm not, like, I'm really, really, really not asking for much. Like, I really don't think that I am. But there's just, like, it, it's, I, I don't know if COVID fucked up people's ability to, like, sit in front of someone one-on-one, have a decent conversation. It doesn't even have to be good, but just decent conversation and get to know each other like that just doesn't it's not happening i mean i so i i had a boyfriend going into covid and we broke up (laughs) around this time in 2020 and so i guess i have dated you know i didn't do anything until uh vaccines or whatever but spring 2021 (laughs) i was back out like in the proverbial street no in the literal streets because you got to eat on the curb now Okay. And, and I, I don't know. I don't know that I would say that things felt especially different before or after. I feel like there's a big difference in DC versus New York dating. Mm-hmm. I feel like being on the apps in one's late thirties as opposed to early makes the pool different. And I can't tell how much of like the lack of inventory is because like I'm I'm getting age <laughs> cut off from like younger men or because it's DC and like the inventory just isn't as it's not inventory. The inventory is not giving what it used to give. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll just say that. <laughs> um, so I don't know. But like generally speaking, like I, I almost found it was like I was just so desperate for human interaction that my first few dating, you know, um, attempts in 2021, I just found everyone to be absolutely delightful. I was like, how? Wow. A human being made of flesh with words coming out of their face hole. No, it's just me. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, not Aubrey. I, I, well, so okay, so I have to give you a little bit of context, I guess. Okay. So I'm in, I'm in my mid twenties, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the guys that I've been going out with, like they're, like they're my, they're my age, but like I think part of the issue is, is that, like, it's, I, and I think a lot of this is because of COVID, or mm-hmm. at least like directly influenced by that. Like, I think these people, like, previously didn't have very much dating experience. And Mm. so their only experience with dating, like, was during this COVID era when... It's like the third third graders who are at a first grade reading level because of COVID. That's happened also for people's (laughs) relationships. Mm -hmm. Yes, precisely. And, like, I, like, I don't know what it is because, like, I'm not here, like, I'm not Build-A-Bear workshop, like, or Build-A-Man workshop. Like, I'm not, <laughs> like, I'm not trying to construct somebody and, like, build them up into somebody that I can take out into society. But, like, I feel like that that's, that's where I'm at <laughs> because the baseline is so low. I mean, okay, but a lot of people, let me challenge this a little bit, Isaiah, and by because okay, people say that the bar is on the floor, but they... <laughs> Or as you put the bars in hell, which I think is a great title for like a series or a book or something, but, or like an actual bar, maybe even, 
Um, but I, I, people say that, like, I have girlfriends who say that to me, and they're also like, oh, but he has to be at least six foot tall, and he has to make $100,000 a year. Right, right. Brie, I'm 5'9". I'm not looking for a six foot tall guy. Okay, but you are looking for him to be six foot. Because <laughs> no, I heard no, you, no, I didn't no, hear you no, dispute no, no. the six foot. You were like, he doesn't have to be six three. Like I know he doesn't have to be six three, Isaiah. Almost nobody okay. is six three. <laughs> okay, first of all, Bree, my last boyfriend was like five six. Okay, <laughs> so, all right. Okay, short we king. Lo- you know, you guys know I love a short king. I'm five six, and I have dated many a five seven king. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But no, like that's like that's that's not that's really not like what it is for me. Like I just. Like, like Biden was saying, like, I want to have fun. Like, I want to have a good time. I want to have conversations. Like, like, of course, like, if I'm matched with you, like, there is physical attraction there. Like, despite, like, what your height might be, because these people be lying about their heights. That's true. But... That's true. They do be lying. <laughs> <laughs> but no matter. Putting that to the side. No, like, I'm really, like, not asking for them to be a millionaire that's, like, six feet tall and um, is, has rippling muscles. Like, no. Okay, well, that's good because... Stop it. <laughs> I don't know if you've observed. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, that is not, that is not what is on, on, on service right now. <laughs> no. Yeah. Like, Isaiah, are you having, like, I wonder because you are a little bit younger in the mid twenties too. And I know that that was definitely my, you know, my fuck boy phase for sure. So the, 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 the like maturity level or the willingness to kind of have like a one-on-one actual connection. Uh, you know, I didn't really treat it seriously at that time. It, do you think that's more of like, is, is that kind of what you're seeing out there in these streets or is it more, uh, do you think there's something else going on there? Um, you're asking if I think it was, like, immaturity or something like that? Yeah, well, I mean, like, in some um, of these dates and everything that you're going out on, you know, like, is it just, mm-hmm. is it just that people don't want to do anything seriously? Are they scared? Or is it something else? Because, I mean, I've heard from a lot of people, more Gen Z, uh, mm-hmm. that they're having problems with just vulnerability with people. And mm-hmm. they don't really like the idea of, um, because obviously, you know, when you're in a relationship with someone, it's it's that two-way street of vulnerability that can open you up to a lot of pain when things go wrong, if they go wrong, mm-hmm. right? So it's, I, I see a lot more reluctance, or I've heard from Gen Zers that they have a lot more reluctance to get into that because, you know, like, why why would they subject themselves to all that messiness? So, okay. Well, let me tell you about Grindr. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask, this is a whole other layer here in gay relationships. <laughs> But tell us, as Isaiah. Let me tell you, let me tell you about Grinder. So, and I will speak for myself personally. I, so I'm seeking like something long term and like a lot of intimacy, and I don't think that I'm like emotionally stunted or like super mature or anything. But I also know that, like, yeah, I can put in the work in these relationships or like attempt to, and I have been. But at the same time, like, even if this doesn't work out, like, I can download this app, scroll through the tiles, and, like, pick, like, somebody that I want to be intimate for the night with. And, like, that ease of access, from person, like, I, I do wonder, like, if it's, uh, um, 
I, I do wonder if that's like contributing to the problem with people not wanting to seek intimacy. Because yeah, I think you're right by like that is like an issue <laughs> with my uh, age bracket, and it's yeah. difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you ever meet people know. in real life, Isaiah? Because I'm told repeatedly by people that they're just meeting people in the flesh. That's not my girl. Where? Exactly. <laughs> I'm told like... people are always looking at their nose and being talking about like I don't understand how you're meeting people online. I'm like, where in the real life, especially in these pandemic <laughs> times? Mm. What about you, by? Do you meet two people like... in real life? I have before, yeah. Just at different events and stuff. Usually, it's like stuff I don't want to go to. Like, events. Like, what on yeah, earth like kind of girl. event? Where did you meet your you ex fiance? This, this, uh, where did I meet? I met her actually through, uh, her, uh, her and her brother were both attorneys and, uh, we met at some, uh, Cook County Bar Association actually. So it's like the See, Black Bar Association over here. I was never going to go to that. Yeah. I was never going to, you know, but like some of it, I don't know. They start what, saying, what hey, you got to like? do them. Um, they got a lot more leftists with me. <laughs> Because part of why I would think, oh, I'm not going to meet my husband at a Black Bar Association event is because I would perhaps unfairly judge the attendees as conservative. Sure. Well, Mm -hmm. I I, so she was she was definitely she was a Democrat. But I will say one of the one of the fights that we got into was uh, she bought a Kamala Harris shirt or a shirt for Kamala Harris that just said, I'm speaking, Mm -hmm. which was her quote that she had with. you know, uh, mm-hmm. Mike Pence in that debate. And she's like, excuse me, I'm speaking. Mm-hmm. And I went into this thing of like, oh, that's just so like symbolic. First of all, I should have just shut the fuck up. Let me just be, let me be clear on some of this stuff. Like sometimes you don't, you don't even have to go there. Cause like, you don't even no, you should have left her. You should have <laughs> left her the second you saw the shirt. <laughs> that was a red flag. Trail. What the actual fuck? <laughs> Come on by. What were you thinking? <laughs> Yo, I would have been out the door. See, that's my problem. That's my toxicity. I recognize yeah. that. Well, it's I mean, self-protective, Brie. You know what's up. Self- it is. It is. And I don't know. Honestly, I feel like, I mean, if I'm going to be real, I feel like I, my politics get a lot more like, uh, there's a lot more room for my politics to actually speak about them and shit. Uh, I don't know what it's like. I think, you know, because if, if people, I don't know, I could see a lot of dudes out there just thinking that they know more about anything. No, it's not because you're a dude. It's because she had a Kamala Harris. I'm speaking t-shirt on. I don't understand what's getting lost in translation. (laughs) Of course. No, no, no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, I have a question. I have a question because, like, I, I, I you got into this a little bit during the dating episode with mm-hmm. the men, Brie, and mm-hmm. also with the women. But, um, the discussion about like whether or not, like, how much political, like, people's political leanings, like, actually factor into, like, whether or not you choose to date them. Because for me personally, like, the gay community is just so small, especially mm-hmm. where I live, that like. Mm-hmm. If I'm cutting out everybody that's not a leftist, I'm going to be left alone with a bottle in my room. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. So, like, how does that, like, Bud, like, what do you think about that? Like, how does that play out for you? With, like, the the leftist thing? I mean, I am definitely... Not necessarily that. I mean, he no, obviously I... didn't care. He obviously kept I... doing no, no, this no, Kamala stand, this K-Hive... I just okay. Stop, stop. You should, you're dragging my ex more than I was. Goddamn. 
Here's the outcome to that story, though. Here's what ended up happening is over time, mm-hmm. you know, she threw out that shirt herself. And she was like, man, Kamala fucking sucks. And I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm about like, look, like, my, I feel like leftist politics, and maybe this is just me, I feel like at least where I've been getting to politically is sort of an mm-hmm. inevitable result of the conditions that we're under. So I think there's a way to get people there. Now, I'm not like, look, I done broke up with a girl before because like uh, we had, let's just say there was one of those, you know, shootings of an unarmed black man mm-hmm. and she was trying to talk to me about but we need the police and they're nice and stuff like that, right? Uh, follow that question, was, Biden. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, you know, uh, you already know. Right, you, <laughs> stop. You gotta ask. You know, Bree. Of course. Of course, Bree. Okay, okay, you okay. Know, so know. this is a woman of a Caucasian persuasion. <laughs> that is exactly correct. That is correct. We better knew that, Bree. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Okay, see, this is this is my thing. Okay, so this is good because let me tell you, those men in that dating episode, I you know I love those guys. JB, I'm gonna exclude him because he was really bringing his full self to the table. But Mm -hmm. those other dudes were not giving me this. What it seemed like to me was like they didn't care about their they didn't care about the politics of the woman at all, which is their prerogative. Mm -hmm. They just didn't care. Moreover, to me, this racial aspect, which was very prominent in the conversation with the women didn't come up with the conversation with the men and the extent to which there are these ways that race can at times inform the politics of the person and they kind of are coming together like this. Right, mm-hmm. right. I mean, I, and I've, I've dated a lot of different like races and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there, is, there is a big difference in just people's ability to just get it, you know? And mm-hmm. I think when you're talking about a situation where, you know, life is stressful, all kinds of other shit happens that that can be stressing us out too. Uh, there is definitely a difference, at least for me, and being able to come home when something depressing like that happens, and already, uh, you know, my partner just is stressed about the same thing, and you know, we're hugging it out, right? As or gets it at the very least. Yeah, like like it's it's hard to constantly explain things that people who really haven't lived the experience get, you know, that's one of the weird things about like race in particular and like being black is like, it's kind of like, it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter where you were kind of raised or anything. Like you, uh, you start to understand that there are these similar just experiences in the way that the system affects you that, Mm -hmm. you know, you can look across the room, make eye contact and you both kind of nod and there's just an understanding there. It's, you know, it's weird. It's like telepathy or some shit. But yes, this this has been my fundamental dating problem is that mm-hmm. you I want that, but also I don't want that person to be wearing a Kamala Harris t-shirt. And that like yeah. oftentimes I'm on the apps and I'm like swiping through black guys and, and in DC especially, a lot of them yeah, will have a picture well, the with worst. Kamala yeah. or Jim Clyburn or Hillary Clinton talking about just terrible politics just not like yeah. oh I don't really have politics <laughs> I don't care cuz I dated people who were like jocks and like just didn't care and that was lovely and fine <laughs> but like if you can't be having opinions the- that are also the bad ones i don't right. like i i'll be patient on this app and on the podcast but my mom the guy i'm seeing everyone is like oh you're a lot less patient in real life correct i used it all up on bad faith 
Well, I don't have the bandwidth in real life. That's, that's your prerogative. To be having the same conversation for free. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, this is your real life. Like when when it comes to like your real life, you want to have somebody who you can just like just not give a fuck. You come home and you you're just you. You don't have to. Uh, you you know you don't have to censor yourself as much. You don't have to like. Uh, you don't have to tiptoe as much. I mean, that's mm-hmm. part of the opening up that bridge of vulnerability. That's what allows, you know, mm-hmm. that closeness between you. Is you both kind of get it on that level. Um, so, but like politically, I don't know. Like I've always been able to, look, I'm, it was, you know, the more I think about it now though, she, we mm-hmm. did have some fights. Like towards the end, it did start to be more of a, uh, of a problem, not because like she wasn't going more left or she wasn't like adopting some of my positions, but because uh, I was just uh, talking about it or thinking about it like all the time. And she'd be like, I don't want to hear that shit right now. And then, you know, when someone tells you something like that, it's like, well, yeah. this is it, like, I yeah. love this. And I like I, this, like, and you know, this is important to me. And mm-hmm. when, when it becomes like, well, why don't you just turn it off? Why don't you just stop? It, it, you know, that can cause some friction. So I, uh, you know, but then again, you know, you're not trying to constantly impose yourself or your values or your interests on somebody either, because you like the person they are. For for me, it's like literally work. And if you can come home from your work day and tell me about whatever it was that went on, I mean, this is a part of it. And it's, it's, you know, I remember when Force of Vote was happening, I was seeing one of the, a very lovely fella, but he was like a jock. And, like a professionally he was a coach and he okay. he <laughs> was like so sweet but i was like well this thing happened on the internet and ryan Grimm and and, and uh, the ratios and jimmy right. door yeah. and yeah. Yeah. and he was like mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and i was like it wasn't his fault like he was a normal person but yeah. i was like yeah. not feeling supported you know what i mean it wasn't his fault yeah, yeah but it just was yeah. what it was but brie but brie i like prefer that like when i get back like like i love to have these conversations but like for me personally like when i like there's a time and a place like I'm, when i get back to my house or whatever um with, like with my ex like we rarely talked about politics because like the work that i do like the what i studied in school was just that and, and so, like, as a result, when I came home, I'm like, you are less informed than me on this topic. Like, I don't want to have this conversation <laughs> right now. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, yes. Yeah. You know what yes, I mean? I, mean like, I, I feel that way like, sometimes, too. Literally it anything depends. else. It, de- it, de- it really, really mm-hmm. depends. Like, sometimes I'm like, I don't need a man to validate what's going on on the Internet. I'll just call Katie Halper. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that's fine but then sometimes like i think there is a sweet spot where they get it enough like they they get it enough to be able to really understand the gravity of when there's like a like a joe cicerone style pile on and to understand like that i'm not just like yeah, complaining yeah. about a tweet you know what i mean right. like i don't need them to be able to like identify who she head is but like I need them to, <laughs> you know. I'm like Amy Therese. Like, I don't need that level of knowledge. In fact, that's probably a disqualifying level of knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, I need you to kind of understand like what a ratio is. Yeah. You know? Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fair. I'm, I mean, you got you got. I, I feel like dating will be extremely hard for you, Bree, just because you got so much going on, and then well, you, you are. 
you are so in the like in the shit you know like you're constantly in this like even i turn off i'll be playing like some pokemon or something and just like chilling and that's it and Mm -hmm. you know and and you know sometimes you can connect with someone over some pokemon or anything i know you got like other interests and everything too but like you go from this to like if you just track the stuff that you do in a day with like two different shows or three different shows and then what having to be active on Twitter to respond to things and then also have substantive conversations about it. You're, you're kind of like, you're in it, you know, you're fully in it. And it's almost like the, the you that is you is more in it than not. If that makes sense. Right. Like, I still feel like I have some distance. I still feel like I have. Yeah. I mean, even even so much of the, Part of my issue is that, like, I'll be, like, really wanting to relax when I'm relaxing and completely disengage. And then sometimes people will be wanting to talk about it or, like, and I'm like, mm, yeah. absolutely not. I'm with you to play, to, you know, to watch uh, Nora Ephron movies and <laughs> go on a run. Like, I don't want to do anything. Yeah. Although, video games, I, I do you know this game, too, it takes two. It's I like know. A partner. Oh, my God. Can, no, I tell I you the, this, can I tell you the, the saddest story? Just for this, yeah. But okay. tell tell the audience so they know it's it's like right. a video game where you play a husband and wife who are on the brink of divorce, and your right. kid casts a spell on you unwittingly, and you turn into these little clay creatures who have to like That's solve right. a series of like challenges together. And the Puzzles idea together. is that you grow closer over the course of the game, and you play it with a two player game ostensibly with your partner. That's right. It doesn't have to mm-hmm. be, obviously. That's that's exactly that's exactly the premise, and it's they're getting a divorce in the game, and they they. All of the puzzles require two players to complete and cooperation. So you have to coordinate. You have to, you know, you you have to work together to get there. And through the course of the game, uh, they kind of repair their relationship. Sorry for the spoilers, but that's the thing. Can I? So here's the sad story. Uh, towards the end of our my past relationship, uh, we had started. We did a couple sessions of couples therapy, and for was it Christmas? I can't remember, but I got the It Takes Two game because it was like, hey, look, they're kind of going through what we're going through. Uh, they're, oh, you know, let's play this together and let's let's do this. And we played one session and it was really fun. And then uh, within like a month or two, we were we were broken up and it was over. And I Aww. still have that game. Damn. I still have the same part of the save file. No, man, it's just that's that's life, baby. That's just how it goes sometimes. And it's but I do. I mean. I don't know. That's I, I. Ah, one day I'll, I'll I'll play this game. But that's I don't know why I told. Okay, that. you're not you're really not ready to reengage with the game. I get that. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> else, get this game because it's a lot of fun. It's fucking great. It's a good game, guys. Really do it. Yeah. I was don't playing worry. all weekend. I was like, and let me tell you, the the characters. We're still in the beginnings, and the characters are very mean to each other. The woman's yeah. a nag. The man is stupid. Like it's your classic kind of um, sitcom setup. Where the man's a big dumb oaf, and the woman is smart but mean, mm-hmm. you know, like right, King right, of Queens right. style, you know, Malcolm yeah. in the Middle. That's how it always goes. Yep. And my character, like we're like we're going out of our way to be like so nice to each other. Like you got this, honey. You can shoot that beetle. But our characters are sniping at each other like crazy. <laughs> and the contrast is hilarious, and you can feel yourself slipping into it because they're modeling it for you in a way that's kind of hysterical. Um. Anyway, it's been fun. It's been fun. I feel like I have to uh, have a conversation about Ralph Nader before everyone in the chat revolts. Yes, yes. Let's get out. Let's get out. Uh, 
This was fun. This was this fun. Was fun. I appreciate both yeah. of you for indulging me on this frolicking yeah. detour. And the o- literally the only reason I called in initially was just to say uh, I really like the idea at the end of forming something like a Slack channel. I'm in. Like, let's do it. Uh, okay, that's the very least I can do. I did start that force the vote Slack, which I've now obviously neglected, but. You know, I've done it before. I can muster. I can figure this out. I can do this again. Stay tuned. I'm gonna. I'm gonna devote myself to this maybe over the holidays. Okay, for sure. I'm. Okay. I'm. Well, we're down. We're down. And Isaiah, nice to talk to you too. And I hope you. I hope you find the one out there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good luck to me too. <laughs> I want this for all of us. Look, I see some people in the chat are like, "No, we like dating." But I saw we we chased uh, we chased someone away who was like not depressed by all of the stuff about the end of the world uh, and accelerationism, but was like, "Oh man, this dating stuff is too depressing." <laughs> I think it was Lysol. Lysol was like, "Environmental catastrophe, I'm in." Dating, oh man, this is too dark for me. <laughs> Oh, that's fun. That's funny. Oh, God. Sorry, Lysol. LOL. So we'll have, we'll, we can, we can obviously do dating version, you know, dating editions of uh, Colin, but I'll move on. Keep the faith to both of you. You've been delightful. All right. Keep the faith. All right. Shelly, you've been very patient. Oh. What's on your mind tonight? It it was, it was a treat uh, to listen to you guys, but I will have to say, I can tell in the direction that the call-in goes, and it is time for you to have a fun episode. <laughs> I wouldn't hate a fun episode. I don't see that in my we, cards right now. <laughs> you know, I mean, well, well it, because so many things have been happening, and yeah. it's just like people on the left just get so starved for fun just because of the constant level of doomerism that is always existing, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was supposed to go on with um, Leslie and T on one of their shows and talk uh, Black Panther, but I haven't even had time to go and see it yet. So oh, that, that was oh, my okay. one respite. I, I, thought, I thought you were talking about just the general party. You're talking about the movie? Kind of- oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. I'm talking about the, the Marvel movie. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I, I was about to say, well, oh, I've got, I've got a really good book on the Black Panthers if you want the title of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Fully just pop culture. That was going to be my outlet, but I can't. I haven't even been able to make time to go because it's like in theaters. So I got to find one. Well, have, so have you not seen Black Panther yet? No, no, the new one. The oh, new okay, one. The new, okay, I haven't seen yeah. the new one yet. I was about to be like, oh, holy shit, you're in for it, and you're gonna <laughs> no, you're gonna like Killmonger more than you. Like. Well, yeah. Hello. Well, T and I had a big knockdown drag out over Killmonger back in like whatever that was, two thousand. 18 um so that's why he wanted to revisit it but like i it won't come on streaming like i prefer not to have to go to a theater but you know that's yeah that's what i'm, I'm always like the whole like shutting down movie theaters i was like great they're pushing movies directly into my face because i'm mm-hmm. a huge introvert you know but anyway i was just gonna say it was a really really good episode with ralph nader you Thank guys you. covered I... so many topics and also this colin has Taken such a circuitous route, uh, <laughs> I can't even remember what I initially was like wanting to call and talk to you about. So I'm gonna propose this instead, so you can kind of help me get back on track. Okay. What was out of the conversation and all the topics that you talked about with Ralph Nader? What were the two things that you thought were the most influential? Made you, you know, dream up a different scenario? Or were the things that were the most telling? I mean, it always is validating to hear the clarity with which. I mean, look, 
there's a world where he didn't necessarily have to agree on the rail worker stuff, right? Like there are people like Noam Chomsky and who I have had strategic disagreements with despite admiring them and their work a great deal. So, you know, when I heard him sounding a lot like Shama in terms of the clarity of you just don't vote for something like that, that mm. felt that was validating. Um, and I also, I think it's nice to hear him talk about some of these like more current eventsy things. And it didn't occur to me until we were in the moment to ask him about Tesla as someone who is America's most famous consumer uh, car safety advocates. And so yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. do I'm, wish we had more time to even go down that farther because it could have been a whole episode just talking about Tesla. Yeah, it was. It, I could tell it was definitely an afterthought, but I'm glad. I'm so glad that you like circled back um, and sort of diverted for a second just to ask that key question. Even though, yes, it could have been a much longer conversation, but I did find that um, very, very interesting. Like just the perspective of just like we're nowhere close to the Andrew Yang vision where all the truckers lose their jobs you know it, it's it's not in the cards right now you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but um anyway yeah i mean that was really good you know what i especially appreciated about this episode with ralph nader what i especially appreciated was where he gave actually how many times have you asked the fatal organizing question mm -hmm. he actually gave you methods yeah and he wanted he to give more yeah, they may not have all been things that I necessarily thought were helpful or agreed with, but you know what? That is the first time any single guest you've had is, well, what do you mean by organizing? And they say, okay, go do a 50-person petition. Go mm -hmm. go do this thing. Mm -hmm. Just immediately get an office and, and go hook up with a local community organization. Like, go do whatever. And it sounds very much like what I would consider kind of like the united front principle. Like, work with groups of people work with organizations on particular issues. A hundred percent. There's no reason to have some sort of creepy purity fetish where, you know, the second you say one thing wrong, we just absolutely excommunicate the person and they're just over here on an Island desperately doing whatever YouTube show shadow band, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because we know that that's a possibility. Like, but people aren't just, you know, a single five minutes of their life, you know, we just, yeah, I, I did have noticed that and appreciated it too. And I, I was trying to work through for myself why I didn't find Nader saying organize to be as frustrating as some other people. And it's because it didn't feel like an excuse. Like, I, I don't know. I will be honest. I don't know that I am as confident as he is that the strategies he articulated will work. However, I appreciated that he was committed to trying a concrete thing and like had a specific detailed approach to how to do it. And so it didn't right. just feel and like obfuscation to say, oh, organize, like uh, don't blame the squad, organize, uh, don't criticize anything, organize, like, you know, instead of the James Zogby retreat of leave it to the people that have been doing it inside the Democratic Party for 40 years. Like he wasn't saying in none of his stuff, did he say, get involved in the Democratic Party and organize the Democratic Party? What he said is he said, organize your community and then approach the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. That is something that is, I would have to say, is 100 percent unique among the guests that have given you the talk about organizing. 
I might yeah. be wrong, but I do for think sure. I it makes me think I, we definitely got to get him back on when we're not so time constrained. I would love to do an in-person interview with him actually, since he, I know, think, he, I think even better book him for a two hour call in. I think that he would be willing to do that. I mean, he, he obviously, I mean, he only calls in via phone <laughs> for these podcast interviews anyway. So that technology right. we've got straight. Um, but it right. would be nice. I, and, I miss doing the in-person interviews we started to do a little bit last summer. Uh, I yeah. think they added and, a and certain something to the conversation. Mm-hmm. He's been in the people so much with all of his, you know, activism and stuff over the years. Like that's a very comfortable format for him. And I think that there's like a mutual exchange of ideas that I think someone like Ralph Nader with his experience could take the ideas from your community and maybe actually turn them into something or at Mm -hmm. least help us come up with a game plan. So I actually think um, maybe the call-in with Nader would be even more beneficial. Yeah, I like that. Thanks, Shelly. Look, I appreciate you calling in and being so patient through... Oh, yeah. Can I please say Mm -hmm. one thing, just because I've seen him all over the place in all of the lefty spaces. There's a gentleman named Neo's Algorithm. He put out a video. I'm not saying that I agree with 100% all of it, but I've seen him trying to get it promoted, and I've seen him trying to do all that. So, y'all, please go watch his eight-minute video. You can come away with it, whatever it is that you want, but he's out here trying to promote it. Give him some help. All right. Oh, we'll have to check it out. Thank you, Shelly. Yeah, thank you. Bye, everyone. All right. Good night. Have a good night. Keep the faith. Uh, all right, UG, what's on your mind tonight? Oh, hey. Um, yeah, um, so I was kind of late to watching your um, episode with uh, about the rail strike, mm-hmm. and I was really interested in asking, like, from, like, a libertarian, like, the government doesn't have as much legitimacy as we think kind of perspective. Why don't the rail workers just ignore the railway labor act and just strike when they want to like you were like, cause like to me, like the conversation, like whenever I hear you, like you and others talking about it, it feels like it's being talked about as if it's absolute. And like the, the term like legal strike comes up and I'm like, a strike is always legal. This is a protest. Like, we not like you know as somebody who just i mean that maybe it's just me but i mean i think that's just a, my libertarian perspective but i feel like when the workers get to a point where you know they they're at an impasse even with the people that are leading them then just do it like <laughs> it, it like the govern the government the government's place isn't to stop it and I think it would be a win-win for for everybody if oh well, yeah the Democrats gonna really go and quell this strike okay, so that yeah. they can legitimacy. So the issue with wildcat strikes and someone put a really good I saw one good article out that really detailed what the rail union has to lose uh, in a wildcat strike situation. If it's an unsanctioned strike, then there are all of these consequences that can happen that make it a lot more difficult for folks. So I believe they can like seize the assets of the the union. They're subject to all of these lawsuits. It basically drained all of the union funds, and they have, they have like two hundred million dollars saved the railroad workers, and they use that to support people while they're not working, right? Um, mm-hmm. and they can be 
technically like arrested, I believe, and hauled away to jail. Like there are all these real consequences don't exist if you strike within the permitted labor format, right? If it's actually a sanctioned strike. So it's not to say that it can't happen and that it's not useful and powerful. There we saw a series of wildcat strikes a few years ago from the teachers unions, right? And there was a lot of public support behind them and they were able to secure real gains. But it also means you're asking your members to subject themselves to a higher level of risk. And it's also not something that is going to be as, it's going to be coordinated by the union and it's got to be, I guess, more spontaneous. And so everyone's yeah. just kind of waiting for everyone to do it. So it's not like, you know, the order comes down and everyone just stays home. Th- that's why. That's why. So you that nobody's just really made that leap yet. I mean, look, I think there are people who would love for that to happen. But I think the feeling, generally speaking, is oh, who am I? Who am I to tell these people to subject themselves to all of this risk so that I hope it sparks some revolution for my benefit? You know, knowing that they're doing it basically without a safety net. You know, I think I think a lot of folks in the institutional left sphere and beyond, I don't think it's unreasonable to want to be a little delicate about pushing someone to do something that exposes them to so much risk, even if ideologically I think a lot of us would love to see it. Yeah, because like I like um I remember there was a point where it was kind of brought up like, oh, we're just gonna think about getting rid of the railway labor act, and I was like yeah, actually, because, like, like the government shouldn't have that much power in the first place to just be like, oh, yeah, well, we're going to arbitrate this because uh, things are going to fall apart. Like, okay, well, then somebody better step in. You know, that that isn't the government to make sure that it doesn't fall apart. They Maybe somebody better make a deal, you know, like, and. Of course, there's that case of like, oh, well, the the railroads could always just say, well, look at these people. Look at how they're making sure that your things can't make it to where they need to be. But if there's a if there's a well thought out strategy, then there should be someone else saying like, hey, well, look at these people. Look at how they're not even letting us have a personal life. Look at uh, how they're making all this money. Yet for some reason. They can't seem to just give people a few days off. Look at how they're making all this money, but they're still letting people go. Like if if they can let people go so easily and they can't give people days off, then they don't need us, right? They can replace us, right? But they mm-hmm. but it's clear that they can't. Like which is the thing. I, like I, I look at these railway workers and I see like people that like are skilled and mm-hmm. aren't just like replaceable by some newbie. So it just it just feels like there's so much leverage. That's on the table, but I guess like that that like idea of like impending like government power is really what's like keeping people keeping people well, like look, I, Maggie Maggie says that you know the hearing no strike talk is exactly what would be heard of a wildcat if a wildcat strike were being planned. The surprise element is crucial, so there is a world where perhaps there's something a foot that we just don't know about yet. And they are planning a wildcat strike. Um, you know, she also points out that they can, you know, sue the union and all the kind of things we were running through before and that there are all these consequences, but you know, it's not over and, and we don't know. And look, maybe we'll find out a week from now. The reason why Ryan and, and some of these labor reporters are so angry with us is because they were, they, they knew that they were secretly planning something and we were being prematurely angry and everything's going to work out in the end. And like, that would be a wonderful story. I would love to hear it. But, you know, it could also be, it could also be, especially when you hear about how 
apparently for these admissions, you heard it on the Chapo episode that they're that they weren't really prepared to strike in the first place. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know at that. I don't know what you think, Maggie. Does that make you feel less likely that there's actually going to be a wildcat strike, or is there no connection between how prepared the union was going to be to strike legally versus how much um, rank and file are willing to kind of go rogue? That's that's a question for someone who's a lot more um, knowledgeable than I am. But yeah, Maggie's also pointing out that there are a lot of people who who have said that they would do a sympathy strike with them, which I think is also important and really heartening. You know, you're you're right, um, UG, when you point out how, you know, obviously critical the service is, how, how critical rail workers are and how much more difficult they are to replace in certain other sectors. Although we had the example of the air traffic controllers and they managed to do that anyway. But still, like this is, this is, this is, so many people are focused on this in part because it is this, um, it's like almost like designing a lab to be the, the perfect union in the perfect sector in terms of its ability to halt the economy and have a real impact and actually be able to prove their value. Yeah, um, yeah go ahead. I was saying that's funny because like, I swear I like just read something about Delta pilots going on strike and getting a huge raise. It's like, these are pilots. But the rail workers can't can't go well, the on pilots, strike. Like, the pilots have been going through it too for a long time. I saw something about pilot salary. I don't want to misquote a number, but it was way lower than you'd think it would be. Their yeah. hours are similarly very very bad for these scheduling reasons. Um, yeah. and now they're trying to do the same thing they're trying to do with the rail workers, where they only have one person in the co- cockpit driving oh, the whole no. plane without a backup the same way they want one person to man these like three mile trains, which is ridiculous and insane. Uh, so yeah. they, they've been going through it. I'm glad to hear. I, I haven't followed whatever you've seen about them getting pay raises, but they have been, they, they deserve yeah. it. They've been going through it for a long time. I remember Sully, you know, what's his name who, who landed the plane on the Hudson river testifying at Congress. Everyone was like, you're a hero, you're a hero. Then he testified on Congress to get them better wages. And everyone was like, shut up, shut up, Sully. <laughs> <laughs> just you know, just keep landing planes. Right. Yeah. I mean, so that, that so that's definitely progress. Like, you know, like that. Like that was specifically at Delta, which is probably one of the bigger, um, bigger airlines. Um, you know, and they get a bunch of stuff from Georgia. I'm I, I, I'm in Georgia myself, and I know they get a bunch of incentives from Georgia. Um. So. It, but I just think that. Yeah, it, it was just a question I had because the about the the you know just the wildcat striking because you know, I didn't even know it was called that, but it was mm-hmm. just like I I was when I was watching the video and I watched the whole thing and I'm like, man, like, what why why does this thing why does it feel like this this little this this hundred year old laws got so much power over these people to where like they're just like nah we we oh well they 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 passed the bill so. Um, I guess that's it. Um, yeah, well, look, we're gonna, I'm definitely trying to get, um, the rail worker that Ryan was referencing and perhaps another one on the horn for a follow-up episode. So it's, I'll definitely ask them about wildcat and not like, are you planning it? But you know, about what the kind of implications are of doing one, we can get into some of those unanswered questions. Cause I agree that we should have been talking about that more, but look, thanks for calling in UG, UG. I keep wanting to call you Eugene. My mouth wants to say Eugene. <laughs> Eugene, uh, are you a first-time caller? 
Uh, I think this is my third time. Oh, okay, my bad. Did you change your avatar? No, I've, it's been the same. I, All I, right. I, I, think I, I just I don't come, I come in as often as like, I always tend to miss them. <laughs> and yeah. especially for like the things that I'm really interested in because like I, I enjoy you because you're passionate about what you are. Like I'm not necessarily, I don't, I'm not, I don't necessarily believe in it, in the same things you believe in, but I enjoy you because you're passionate and you you're articulate, you know? Well, I appreciate so that, I, UG. I, well, we'll get you one of these days. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I appreciate you calling in and listening. Keep the faith, my friend. You too. All right, Jonathan, what's in your mind tonight? Well, uh, first, I should say, although it's not really what I called in to talk about necessarily, some of us are still engaged in that conversation with Ryan Grimm, and it's still progressing, and I think there's value to keeping those kinds of lines of communications open and making ourselves understood, uh, even if we don't necessarily in the short term get them all the way where we want them. So, you know, there's, there's still like, there's still, it's still productive. It's still valuable, but really I called in to talk about this. This is, was just an absolutely awesome episode. Like I, I too feel the frustration because I could have kept him talking for three hours myself, Mm. but feel his job like he and he dropped some some seriously great little sound bites like that thing like the long game keeps getting longer mm-hmm. and uh you know the there's uh you know that the squad gets nothing by going along and you know those are precisely the points that we've been making for ages and apparently he's really been trying to go off about since the 70s and just like this conversation was just incredibly productive and the funny thing is towards the end of it you made a reference and even put a wonderful sound bite from the tomato soup incident of the tomato soup can going against the painting which had such a satisfying splat (laughs) and and like the security guard being like oh dear security or somebody was saying that i don't know the usher or something like that but yeah that was like for that edit Mm -hmm. the funny thing is like that you know, when I was arguing with uh, with people over that particular incident, um, a, a psychologist at the University of Michigan uh, followed me, and like we became friends. And I finished reading her book, which actually has a strange relevance to what you were talking about towards the end of the episode. And it's called the Altruistic Urge. I DM'd you like a copy of the book and a little excerpt you might find interesting. But uh, one of the things she emphasizes in there is that, you know, the critical mediating factors to whether somebody gets off their butt and acts and does something is, you know, it's mediated by like we all have the instinct to do it, but it's, it's mediated by two critical factors in particular. And one is um, the perception of self-expertise, like, do I know how to solve this problem? Mm-hmm. And perception of self-efficacy, can I solve this problem so and that that affects everything from you know comforting a homeless guy outside a coffee shop to running inside a burning building and rescuing a child or getting out in the streets and demonstrating and uh that's you know it it kind of the importance of having a plan or having leaders stand up and demonstrate efficacy of standing up and standing against things and challenging power is so critical to getting people off their butts and just having that 
that set of goals to of ways to get people off their butts, to have action items, to have you know somebody like Ralph Nader saying, "Hey, you give me a thousand paid organizers distributed around the country, we can put pressure on federal legislators to have Medicare for all like inside of eighteen months." Like that kind of thing, really, like it makes a difference. It makes yeah. a huge difference, and I think that's that's the hurdle, the challenge that we all face in, in terms of getting these things done. And it just like, it, it really was like the content was important and I hope you have him back on again soon. Cause like, this was just like every, every minute of this was just dropping diamonds. Like it was just precious. <laughs> it was awesome. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I also see our friend, the liberal tears has invited himself up into the speaker spot. How does he how do you- that? Neil, like, what are you doing? How are you doing hello. this? Hello, everybody. Hello. <laughs> He's a uh, wizard. Are you? Have you really figured out some way to hack this thing? What is going on? I mean, no, of course not. It's magic, <laughs> um, and it's one secret I'll never tell. Um, okay. Take it to my grave. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, everybody. And to everybody who's still out there trying to explain it somehow to Ryan Grimm, you know, and just finding, maybe just finding the right metaphors. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Your work You're is You're out there too. Appreciate it. Of course. Of course. <laughs> He's bad cop. I'm good cop. <laughs> you two are hilarious. I see you. I see you out here in these Twitter streets. Well, what's what's on your mind tonight, apart from the the Ryan Grimm battles, or maybe it's just the Ryan Grimm battles? Hey, oh, where do you go? Away? Oh well, he knows how to come back up on his own. <laughs> so I'll go back to Does you, Jonathan. Because we, because I've secretly been speculating that you've been doing it on purpose. No, I I did not do a thing. He just popped up here on his own. No clue how <laughs> or why. Oh, that's unfortunate because uh, I would have liked to to hear that myself. I didn't get a chance to talk to him today, but anyway, yeah, that was that was really all I called to say. Like this, like this episode was amazing, and uh, you should be proud of it. And I know your mother is proud of you. She was just elated. I had to. I was like, I might have got to leave the end part in where he says, you know, thank your mother for you because that's going to be better than any Christmas gift I could possibly get her. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Well, I always appreciate hearing from you, Jonathan. I see how long the queue is and how many people are still here and some new faces. Antonio, that looks new. Bells, I've seen you in the chat. I want to talk to you generally. Anthony, you look kind of new. Sunny, I don't recognize that avatar. Nestor, Russell, I'm trying to just like, Sonia, I'm putting your names in my head so I can cheat toward you uh, for the next call in. But I got to wrap tonight because it's late and we're already at the three hour mark. But you know what it is. I'll see you back very shortly. I'm going to send you out with a little Donny Hathaway. I watched this Twitter. YouTube suggested to me this clip where this guy was doing an analysis. Let me do normal speed. This guy was doing an analysis of this song and why he believes it's Donny Hathaway's best song and the change between four, four and three, four and the chorus and just like a real beautiful musical analysis. And I already love the song, but somehow I love it harder. So enjoy, and I'll see you on Thursday.
Keep going. 